1: What a life, what a day, Saturday, July 24, 2021. We recorded on July 23, 28th anniversary of a horrific event. Tom Holler shot dead. His wife, Christina, carjacked. The rest of this story comes via my interview of Carol Malaysia. Tune into that. It's about a half hour in. She was the victim advocate on this so many other big deal tragedies, but she has a gift. You will hear it, understand why. Carol Malaysia, half hour in, following Dylan Roberts, Colorado State Rep Dylan Roberts in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. He returns. He's going to run for state senate. Carrie Donovan's seat. She's running against Lauren Boebert. God willing, she will win. We talked about all the big current events. Dylan, and me at the start of the show. And then, please, after Carol, our segment with the troubadour, Dave Gunders, is super special because his longtime buddy, bandmate, pal, friend, what a friend, T5, Valladares, he's a famous boulder musician. The groups they've played in, now they're in the Mighty Twisters. You can go see them, perform at the Dorado on July 31st, find out why you should attend in a special segment with our troubadour, Dave Gunders, and his bandmate, T. Let the show begin.
2: Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge.
1: Dylan.
0: Hey, Craig. How are you? Good. Welcome back to my lounge. Yes, thank you. Thanks for for having me.
1: Well, you're in the newspaper. Somebody said (laughs) you're running for state senate as part of an elaborate plot to get rid of Lauren Boebert. Not get rid of her, but just have her not represent the western slope anymore. Do I have this all correct?
0: Uh, yes, this week I announced uh, that I'm running for the, the Colorado State Senate, and uh, it's the district that, Sen- that Senator Kerry Donovan has been representing for the last seven years, and she's term limited at the end of next year. So I decided to jump into that race and uh, try to fill her shoes when she when she leaves.
1: Right, but you were mentioned as a possible successor to Lauren Boebert, if only. But Carrie Donovan seems to be one of the main them choices. There's opposition, but somebody's got to do something about Lauren Boebert. She's a Colorado embarrassment.
0: Yeah, you know, I I agree with that. She has not been representing us uh, here in Western Colorado well, in my opinion, and, uh, you know, seems to care more about getting herself in the news than than doing anything positive for her district. Uh, So I had been considering it for a while to run against her. Uh, But there are uh, several other qualified candidates on the Democratic side who are in that race, including Senator Donovan. And uh, you know, I think uh, any number of them, whoever wins the primary will, uh, would do a better job than Lauren Boebert in Congress, of course, but I think we'll, we'll be able to run a good campaign. And I thought, you know, the best place for me to continue serving Colorado would, would be in the state Senate.
1: Are you, will you participate with an endorsement in that primary?
0: Uh, I support uh, Carrie Donovan. Uh, she and I are, are good friends, but I also think she is running the strongest campaign so far and, and is going to have the, the best campaign built up by the time the general election comes, comes around. And I think she's the best person to go toe to toe with Lauren. So I'm supporting Carrie Donovan in that race.
1: She's a true West Sloper. So are you, a steamboat pilot and this new district that you hope to represent in the state Senate. What are the boundaries or do you even know?
0: Well, we know what the preliminary map looks like—the uh, the map that came out a couple of weeks ago—and it's of course just the first draft, and the lines are subject to change as the commission travels around the state and, and hears from the public. But as of right now, it would be most of the counties that represent our or that include our mountain communities in Colorado. So uh, it has Eagle County where I live uh, as the the base of the in the northern part, and then it goes to Pitkin, Gunnison, Chafee, Lake, Summit. Clear Creek and Gilpin counties.
1: No, Steamboat?
0: Uh no, Route County is not in that district. Routt County is in a is has been in a different senate district for quite some time and at least in the preliminary map, uh, Steamboat and Route County are not in that in that district.
1: I don't pretend to know what it's like to grow up in western Colorado. Recently <laughs> I'm thinking it's a different world when I see Trump signs all over the place. Can you explain <clears throat> western Colorado to me?
0: Well, you know, I can explain it from my perspective and, you know, somebody that's lived here most of my life uh, and I'm very lucky too. I think we all love living out here for because of its natural beauty, but, you know, politically it it's uh diverse and I think uh, you know, it depends where you are and and what uh community you're in, but you know, there's definitely people on the far left and certainly people on the far right, but from my perspective and my experience serving as a legislator for two terms now is a lot of people are really in the middle uh you know we you know we live out in the western part of our state we're a little more independent we don't uh you know stick to ideological lines too much because we as smaller communities need to work together to to uh, get things done and, and move our communities forward so i think a lot of us even more so than on the front range of colorado live kind of in the middle politically and um you know that is why we've always had fairly moderate members of Congress, I believe, who to represent this area. And is exactly why uh, Lauren Boebert is such a stark contrast from what I think most of the voters out here actually want.
1: I sure hope so. It would yeah. be disappointing to share a state with people who really like Lauren Boebert. What are the issues out there? Can I guess in the top five, uh, oil and gas and then agriculture?
0: Absolutely. I would say, yes, of course, energy development is, is a major part of the economy, uh, particularly, you know, as you get over to Mesa County and the, the Grand Valley. Uh, but agriculture runs through the entire region, even even here in Eagle County and particularly up in Route County. Uh, but all through the Western Slope, uh, agriculture is a is a major part of our economy and, and sort of the reason why a lot of our communities exist. And then hand in hand with that is water. Uh, water is so vitally important to, right. our, to our region for agriculture, but also for uh, outdoor recreation uh, and other industries. Uh, and then tourism, of course, uh, is a huge tourism in the economy. You know, a lot of our communities depend on tourism. And then I would say uh, the other main issue or a couple other issues is, uh, of course, uh, climate and our environment. We all live here. Uh, because we enjoy being in, out in open spaces and beautiful environments. And, and we know that uh, the degradation of our environment could cause harm to our way of life. And uh, we see that every summer now with wildfire. And uh, that's a for the people You're, who live out here.
1: I, went, uh, I, I participated in a CLE. By that, I mean, I listened to other people via Zoom
0: yeah.
1: talking about climate change and what attorneys can do. I thought, well, I'll get one legal credit. They even gave us an ethics credit, and it scared the shit out of me, Dylan. I mean, you hear it every day, but yep. one speaker said, you see what's happening right now with the record heat, the wildfires? This is going to be one of the last great years. We will think about this as the good old days. And then, oh my gosh, are we, is it that bad? What can we
0: do? You know, I, I don't think there's any silver bullet answer. I think uh, we need to come to a place, I believe, in our politics where climate change and, and acting on protecting our environment is not a partisan issue. Uh, you know, I, I and that's what I hope to do to continue to do in the state Senate. You know, I've worked on bills in the state house that have been bipartisan that get at water conservation and forest health and wildfire mitigation. Uh, and they've been, you know, almost uh not controversial uh, because I think, you know, we've been able to find agreement on those fundamental issues, but I think we need okay, to make let me sure. Push back.
1: Let me just yeah. push back a little bit because I'm <laughs> going to be a West sloper and I'm going to be saying this to you and to Carrie Donovan and telling you guys why I'm voting for Lauren Boebert. Cause okay. she's not going to mess with my income from energy. She's not going to mess with my cattle or my feedlots. And that's an important industry. She's not going to mess with my livelihood. So, I mean, what do you say to a person like that?
0: Well, I think you say your livelihood includes your ability to to live here. Uh, and if we uh, continue to have the uh, drought that we're having, uh, we, w- we won't be able to raise cattle in western Colorado. If we continue mm-hmm. to have the drought we're having, we won't continue to be able to— uh, farm and and grow crops, uh, and your way of life will be, um, decreased or completely, um, uh, turned around because of that. And so water and climate are inter, uh, are completely linked together. And if we have a a hotter, drier climate, there was going to be less water for you to maintain your way of life. So we need to find ways to, uh, continue our, uh, energy production heritage and, and maybe transition uh, a lot of our economies to green energy uh, as well as honoring uh, the the towns and the economies that we've built up. And uh, we can make these changes to protect our environment without completely disrupting our way of life. But it's going to take some forward thinking and it's going to take some recognition that this is all linked. And if we keep having dry, hot, dry summers and winters where there's less snow, our way of life is going to be completely changed if not destroyed out here in Western Colorado.
1: And can I finish that, Todd? by saying that's why we need state senator dylan roberts working alongside jared polis who is ideally situated to deal with this climate crisis and he's a capitalist and he said it is inaugural and it's his attitude that you can make money out of this it's new industry don't be debbie downer although If you got an oil rig in your backyard or cattle back there, it might be a problem for you. But for a lot of people, it's going to be jobs. It's going to be a wonderful new future.
0: It's a, it, they're great jobs. You know, I I worked on a bill this this year at the legislature that passed that will uh, incentivize those green jobs and the in the power companies that uh, need power to build those green new technologies in the communities where there's currently coal plants and coal jobs. And so that's the type of uh, policy I think we need to be looking at is is realizing that these people you know rely on these good jobs and they live out here because of those great jobs and they love the communities where they live. We can build the green jobs right in those same communities. It's not that the green jobs are going to be outsourced uh, far away from them. We can promote legislation and policies that keep those those really good-paying jobs in Colorado and on the Western Slope, uh, and that's the type of thing that uh, you're right. I think the governor has been a leader on. A lot of people at the legislature have been a leader on, and, and if we can just get past this ideological battle, we could really make some big strides here in our state.
1: Boy, that would be beautiful. Yeah. You talked about the district. There was a report in the paper where I'm the columnist at large, the Colorado Sun. I expect you mm-hmm. saw it, that the Dems gave away the farm in redistricting back several years ago when they tried to do the right thing. Do you agree with that?
0: Uh, you know, I uh, that was my first year in the legislature uh, when we voted to put those questions on the ballot, and, and I supported putting them on the ballot. I think In general, gerrymandering is a bad thing. I think we should have voters choosing their politicians and not politicians choosing their voters. And, uh, you know, I still think on the whole, this process is going to work out well for our state. Uh, You know, we, um, you know, we could have taken the attitude that, you know, we, we are in power and we should be able to draw the lines to keep ourselves in power. But, you know. It might sound corny, but I think the reason why we're in power now, the Democratic Party, is because most of the voters in Colorado agree with the policies we've been putting forward and and putting into law. And if we can continue to do that, they'll return us to office. And, um, you know, redistricting was never intended to be about incumbents in office at the time. It's supposed to be about the future and, you know. We'll see how this goes. Of course, we have never done this before, so there's a lot of um, chinks and uh, you know confusion going around right now. Hopefully, by the end of this, when we have the final maps, it, you know whether that's in September or December or sometime in between, that we'll look back and say this was overall a good thing. Um, you know, but we'll see. I think uh, it's it's a complicated issue, and uh, it you know is. It certainly. But yeah, I, I got, like
1: competitive districts. I just wish yeah, Bobert's district was a little more fair.
0: Well, that's and that's the other side of this is the at least the preliminary maps made congressional district three, or, which Lauren Bobert represents, uh, less competitive than it currently is, and right. so that kind of went in the opposite direction. And I'm, you know, I think we're if, all if a little confused stands, about
1: that. If that stands, Dylan, can she be beaten by any damn?
0: Uh, it, it'll be a tough race, but I, I, still think, uh, you know, her track record thus far is, is turning a lot of people off and, and certainly whoever her opponent is is going to have a lot to work with. Um, but it's turning on is,
1: her checking account. She's raising a boatload of money. Yep.
0: Uh, a lot from, uh, she's raising a lot of money. It seems unfortunately that the more outrageous and extreme you are, particularly on social media, the more money you raise.
1: Yeah, yeah, Donald Trump taught us yeah. that he's got seventy five million that he squirreled away from these saps who give him money. He's a billionaire begging for money and he's living off of that. Anyway, let's yeah. turn to what it's like to be a legislator. What do you think about those Texas legislators fleeing the state? Is that a good move? Bad move? Do you support it? Are you against it?
0: You know, I you know, I'm, I'm certainly haven't been following it as closely as uh Probably folks in Texas have been. But, you know, you, when you look at the the bill they're protesting about, I do think that those types of uh, bills and pieces of legislation that seem very deliberate to undermine people's right to vote and to um, prevent. And they
1: perpetuate people. Trump's big lie. They're exactly. trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist just to satiate the guy that runs the, their party.
0: Right. And it's not, you're absolutely right. It's not based in any evidence because I, you know, I did see read something about Texas that there is no evidence of voter fraud in Texas. There is no reason actually to put forward this type of legislation uh, based on, on facts. And it's certainly all because they are upset about the results of last of the last election. And uh, you know, I, I think, you know, when something as fundamental as someone's right to vote. You should do whatever you can to protect it. And, uh, you know, they're using the power that are within the rules of the Texas Constitution in my understanding to, to do this. And, uh, you know, I think we, we have to operate under the rules we have, and we do the same thing at the Carly Legislature. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I give them uh, props for being bold and, and trying to do what they can to protect the right of Texans to vote.
1: Do you remember when Colorado was part of Texas? It was well before we were both born,
0: but yes, of course, it ran
1: right into your district, right
0: uh I believe yes, I believe it did. I think most of Colorado, yep,
1: right. no, it's that center cut Denver was never part of Texas, but yes, but the western slope creed Colorado, especially kind of brags about being part of Texas and anyway, I've been thinking about it, writing columns about it and I'm wondering if you've ever driven from Colorado to Austin, Texas.
0: You know, I haven't driven to Austin, but I, you know, I went to college out on the East Coast. Uh, and so I would drive back and forth each summer. And and one summer I did take the Southern route and we drove from uh, steamboat in Route County down to, uh, through the panhandle of Texas. And I think we ended up going through Dallas as we exited into, uh, arkansas and louisiana but um didn't drive to austin i have been to austin once uh, but but i did i flew there
1: i've never been there but there's yeah. some kind of rally i heard beto o'rourke talking about it and since the texas people had to leave this state maybe some colorado people should go down there and say you know what We don't like the big lie. We don't like legislation that emanates from the big lie. We want as many people as possible to be able to vote in any state because we're all interconnected, and we're here in Austin to say it. I bet Saturday, July thirty first, could be a big deal. I wouldn't be surprised if legislators from other states go down there.
0: Yeah, well, I think, and we should, uh, you know, people from Colorado should go down there and 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 talk to them about the. uh, you know, great voting system we have in our state. You know, one that's very secure and, and gives access to uh, as many people as possible. And, and we, because of it, we have the second highest turnout in the country. And so, I think a lot of states could learn from Colorado.
1: Right. Thanks to another guest in Craig's Lawyers Lounge, Jenna Griswold. Before I let you go, the one thing that I think could really hurt Dems in the next election is criminal justice. You are a prosecutor. That's how I met you. And uh, tell us, are you worried about the increase in crime and what are the solutions? And is it a political liability for the Democrats?
0: You know, uh, I think anybody is concerned about the increase of of crime in their communities. And, and, you know, it certainly has been happening in in my communities uh, in Eagle County. Uh, You know, I think criminal justice reform is... uh, you know something we've been working on since i've been at the legislature and i've been happy to support a lot of the the efforts uh, along those lines you know i think we need to take a step back and and make sure we're addressing underlying causes of increasing crime and not not simply um you know reacting but trying to get at the root of the problem and, and often that comes back to mental health and to education and and supporting uh people before they ever find themselves in that in that place in life where they commit a crime uh, however, I think we need to also make sure that we're doing what's right for public safety and, and recognizing that uh, people have the right to feel safe in their communities and, and working uh, more with... Uh, law enforcement, but also other community partners that can help with preventing crime or or helping people get treatment when they need it. Um, You know, I sometimes vote against my party on criminal justice issues at the Capitol uh, because I I try to vote my district above all else. And I, you know, listen to law enforcement in my district and other concerned citizens in my district. And uh, as far as a political liability, uh, you know, we'll see. I think we need to make sure that I don't think most of my colleagues ever say defund the police or anything like that. It's uh, more about smart reforms and, you know, the best criminal justice bills we've done at the Capitol in Colorado have been bipartisan and uh, we've done a lot on a bipartisan basis on this subject. And I hope we'll do more.
1: I love my interactions with Denver police. That's the only agency I really worked with being a Denver prosecutor. You probably work with a range of different police departments and, I expect you had good relations, but I wonder if politics has gotten in the way, or does professionalism overcome that? And during, say, the election of 2020, did politics ever intrude?
0: You know, it's it's definitely a if a fine balance and a and a fine line. You know, when I go back to my other job as a prosecutor, I I do my best to to do my job as you know I'm not the elected DA, so I'm I'm working for for my boss and and carry out their their policies, uh, but you know, my relationship with law enforcement has always been um, professional and, and I, you know, try to learn as much as I can from them. And I definitely have a unique perspective when I go down to the Capitol to vote on these issues uh, because of my past experience. And uh, I think that's the point of a citizen legislature. But, you know, as far as me personally, I have I think they've certainly gotten some comments off off the offhand or off the record from some line officers or others about you know, me voting for the police reform bill that we did a couple of years ago or things like that. But on the whole, um, I, I think I can also have more frank conversations with law enforcement than, than other legislators can, because, you know, we can, we, we share those experiences and, and sometimes it's been helpful for me to explain to them, uh, you know, these bills, because they kind of hear through the grapevine some things that aren't exactly true. And, and I can go back and explain, no, that's not actually what was in the bill. Here was, Here's what's, what was in the bill. And, but then I can also bring their perspective down to the Capitol and make sure that they're being heard.
1: Right. And all this greeds for or against Trump or a political party or that, if crime invades your world, well, that's a problem. And if it invades society and the government doesn't respond in a good way, then that leaves room for bad organizations like Mafia or the Klan to say, you know what, we're going to take care of you and we're the new guys. And, and that just leads to a breakdown in society. We never want to see that. But I'd like to see you in greater office. You're still in your early 30s. Did I read that right?
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: And now you're going to be a state senator. I predict victory for you. And then <laughs> Thank you. How old are you going to be when you're governor and then after that president?
0: <laughs> well, I don't know about any of that. I'll, I'll, I just, you know, I, I really do have enjoyed being uh, serving as a legislator. I definitely didn't think that I would be doing this uh, at this point in my life. Uh, but uh, you know, things kind of happened very quickly when a predecessor of mine ran for Congress. And, uh, you know, I was kind of thrown into this without too much planning, but ever since I've been there, I've been very fortunate and, and honored with, by the opportunity. And we've gotten a lot of really good stuff done. So, uh, different than Washington, you know, we were talking about Lauren Boebert and dysfunction at DC, the state legislature, we get a lot of stuff done and, uh, you can actually see the, the, uh, ideas that you bring down there turn into law and, and start helping people. And so yeah, it's been a,
1: you guys have a super majority.
0: <laughs> we do. Well, we do are able to pass uh, things. Uh, we have a majority in the House and the Senate. And obviously the governor uh, is a Democrat. Um, there was also a Colorado Sun article uh, a couple days ago that said even despite that, uh, almost 95% of the bills we passed this year were bipartisan, uh, and so things are not nearly as gridlocked uh, or partisan as they are in Washington. And I kind of like that, so I'm really happy with where I am now. It would be an honor to serve in the Senate uh, and continue that that state legislative work.
1: Dylan, you're gonna do it. Thanks for being in the lounge again. Always appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me in the lounge, Craig. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk soon.
1: All right, safe travels.
0: Yeah, thanks. You too. Bye.
1: Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end of life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. Uh, We both pride ourselves on being good attorneys, and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you want to go through a few of these right now, and we'll keep going on future talks. What about number one, behave yourself. What does that mean to you?
3: I mean, there's a whole slew of things you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board.
1: They need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information.
3: Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my, my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too.
1: If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound and then leave a positive review. More than anything, push the podcast to your friends. Let them listen. Thank you. This is like old home week on a very significant day. She feels like part of the family, and we've been walking around the home complex, culminating in the fantastic studio for the podcast. Carol Malaysia, we've known each other for a long time, and you knew me back in the day, back when I was single. How about that? Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Craig. It's great to be here. Let's first talk about your name,
1: which is spelled M-A-L-E-Z-I-J-A. And that's easy for me to say because I helped hire you. And but the roots of that name, I bet you, you get a lot of questions about it.
2: We do, actually. Uh, my husband is Croatian, Ukrainian, and our uh, grandparents were immigrants. I am also from Eastern Europe. Um, so, yes, we get a lot of, of information about how what's your name about, how do you spell it. And I recently told my daughter-in-law, don't worry, you'll just have to spell it a million times in your lifetime.
1: Right, because Malaysia, there's a country, and no, it's not like that. Right. So what, what was your maiden name?
2: Rihula, which is a little bit more unique, right? Uh, my father's... Now,
1: how do you spell that?
2: R-E-H-U-L-A. But when I lived in, um, outside of Pittsburgh, actually, my father was a professional photographer, so his name was very well known, as was my grandfather, who was an immigrant from the Czech Republic.
1: Rahula photos? Yes, sir. See, that's catchy.
2: (laughs) It is. I even have a photograph. We take photos, rain or shine. Just such a basic marketing as compared today.
1: I don't think I've ever been to Pittsburgh. I did watch that movie about uh, the guy with kids, Tom Hanks. Who was that? Uh, Not Pee Wee Herman, but the nice guy. Won't you be my neighbor, Fred Rogers?
2: Oh, Fred Rogers, yes, of course. Pittsburgh? very beloved in Pittsburgh, very, very much so. They have a beautiful statue of him down at the park on the river. Lots of rivers, obviously, the name Three River Stadium. And, um, yeah, there was another film way back in the day called The Deer Hunter, one of my favorite films. And if you want to look at that, you'll see a little bit about Pittsburgh in the 70s when the steel mills were still going full bore and people didn't have a lot of money. It was uh, not a beautiful city at that time, but it certainly is now.
1: Was it divvied up among different ethnicities? Uh, Did you live around black people, Hispanic people, Jewish people, or was it... A divided city.
2: I think that's a really interesting question, Craig. Um, When we moved out here, I said to my husband, "Where, where is everybody?" And by that I meant were the different ethnic groups, mainly Italians, Greeks, Eastern Europeans, certainly the Black community, and um, I'm trying to think what else. But that was majorly who I grew up with, that group of individuals. And when I came out here, I. Where are the Italians? Where are—and Jews? I actually lived in a Jewish community. In Pittsburgh? No, about 25 miles south of Pittsburgh. It's a little town named Charleroi, But my mother was born and raised in the city of Pittsburgh, and she was born and raised in a Jewish community.
1: Interesting. Yes. Well, and, uh, you know, we were everybody's big brother. Tell us about your family. Um, We know Rahula photos now, but tell us about your mom and siblings.
2: Oh, that's a pleasure. Thank you for asking that question. Um, I idolized my parents. My father was very refined. He was a quiet man. He wasn't very tall, about 5'8". But he had such a presence about him that he could get a group of 250 people together. In five minutes, everybody looking at the camera... Nobody blinking and everybody smiling. And I used to go with him when I was five years old and watched him. And I think I learned a lot of my personality from my father. My mother was more quiet, the typical, I don't want to say typical, but a housewife in the 50s. But prior to that, she was an assistant director, uh, assistant manager, I guess, of the candy department of Gimbel's Candy Store in Pittsburgh.
1: That meant free candy.
2: It did. It did. We all love candy. Um, I and
1: haven't... if I was a friend of yours back then, I'd say, hey, I'm part of the Rahula clan, and <laughs> can you get some for me? I mean, uh, were there limitations?
2: No, the really cool part of my mother, what I love so much about her is her loyalty to her own parents. And every, every week, she brought her mother a box of Anna Claire's. That's the candy's name, and it's marshmallow and nuts and chocolate, and she was so devoted to her family. She did not marry my father until she was 26, and as we both know, back in those days, that was a little bit older. Dad was 29, so she still had that dedication to her parents.
1: (laughs) That's beautiful. Thank you. I'm I'm going back to when I first met you. You were an applicant for a job. I had some Mm say-so, and... I was just blown away by your style of speaking, conducting yourself. It's shining through right now. I didn't know where you got it from, but I bet part of it was your dad. But you are just so comfortable in your own skin. And when you walk into a home like my home, wherever, you adapt to your surroundings with a smile on your face. I'm just... Bragging about you because I ended up working with you, and I knew when I sent you into a situation, you would handle it in the right way. Tell us what you remember, and tell us your career path. I'm sorry, you're a hula girl. So, how long did you wait till you got married?
2: Well, I was 22. My husband was 23. We both wanted to complete college. That was a big day, a big deal back in those days to finish college. So we got married. We had 500 guests at our wedding.
1: My God.
2: <laughs> and um, we started off in very... At,
1: a, at what church?
2: We got married at St. Jerome's Church. It was almost like a th- cathedral in our hometown. And we had 500 guests, and many people do come to the church and the reception. So this was a beautiful May day, May 27th of 1972. And... Um,
1: Number 50 coming up. Yes,
2: it is. Yes, it is. And I still love him and like him even more.
1: That's so cool. (laughs) And I know he loves you, too. But what's not to love? So where did you go to
2: college? (laughs) So I went to a school named Robert Morris, and that's where Joe and I met. Although we lived five miles away from each other, we never met. We went to different high schools. And we met there, and the rest is history. He did have to take a break. He went into the Army Reserves, and that was during the Vietnam era. So he went into the reserve, so he took a break, so he graduated a year after the normal graduation, and we waited until we got jobs, and then we got married. And I was initially a paralegal.
1: (laughs) Wow, did you go to paralegal school? No,
2: I didn't. I actually went and got business classes, and uh, we had a pretty high-powered attorney in that town, knew my reputation, knew my father, gave me a break, and... Oh, boy, Craig, this is way back in the day when we took dictation. So I would take dictation for two hours, and then I would um, transcribe the dictation, and then the next part of the day was two more hours of dictation. What was
1: the lawyer's name?
2: John Costello.
1: you respect him?
2: Oh, my gosh. You know, it's interesting. He reminds me a lot about you. He's a powerful man. He was a very tall man. He was a very kind man. He always treated me with respect and dignity, and I appreciated that. Thank you.
1: Is he still?
2: No, he's he's deceased. Okay. Yeah.
1: Gosh. John Costello, how long did you work for him?
2: I worked for him about three years. I was kind of antsy at that point in my life. I was doing more clerical work, and I just didn't find that my spirit was there.
1: What kind of cases did he handle?
2: He handled mainly family law.
1: Oh, that'll... (laughs) <laughs> That'll get to So, paralegal, then, then what?
2: Then I went on and worked for Alcoa Aluminum in Pittsburgh and worked for their security department. I worked with two FBI agents. I always had in my heart as a young girl, I wanted to be an FBI agent. But whoever heard of a young girl graduating in 1968 from high school, and as you know, I'm pretty diminutive, uh, being an FBI agent, that was unheard of. So I got as close to it as I could and learned, and then I moved on to another secretarial, and then I ended up working for Ball Corporation for an executive vice president. And after that, we had our son, and we started relocating for my husband's business, went back to school, finished another degree here in Colorado at Metro State University, and my first job there was selling pharmaceuticals.
1: How long did you do that?
2: Only for two years.
1: How much of this big settlement do you have to pay out of your own pocket? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, yeah. you don't, let me, as a lawyer, you yeah. don't have to admit anything. But <laughs> is it a, an honorable profession, pharmaceutical?
2: Um, you know, I, it was then, but um, I saw things that I thought, uh, you know, it just... Felt like too much money was being on, paid on medication that I knew wasn't costing that much. So lot. how the
1: heck did you end up being a world-class victim <laughs> advocate?
2: Well, it's really an interesting story, a good question. Again, I met an investigator from the Denver District Attorney's Office in a doctor's office. Who is that? Dan? Dan Chun.
1: Dan Chun. Yeah. Unbelievable.
2: And he was dressed appropriately, had a suit on and everything, so I thought he was a rep. And you know, you don't like somebody to step on your toes, so to speak, when you have the appointment with a physician. So I said, "Do you have an appointment with a doctor?" And he said, "Well, yeah, but who do you think I am?" I said, "Well, you're a rep, aren't you?" And he said, "No, I'm not." He told me he was an investigator. I said, "Oh, fascinating. I always love law. Tell me more." So he did. And we came, became friends. And actually, it was Dan that called me up one day and said, "You know, you should be a victim advocate." And then Craig, as you all know, there weren't that many victim advocates, so
1: no, we kind of pioneered it in the oh, Denver VA. Oh, absolutely,
2: absolutely pioneered it. There's no doubt in my mind you did.
1: If probably, I don't know. Um, when I got there, it was just starting, so probably from the late '70s, early '80s. And then you're walking in. What day was it when you interviewed?
2: It was actually the end of December. I called you once, and interest interviewing was really important to me, to see what you're about, what the, what the job is about. And you said, well, I don't want to do that, but come in and we'll interview. It's late December. So I interviewed with you, Joan White, and I believe Steve Siegel. And it was, a, I thought, a very good interview. And you said, well, you have to come back and interview with Norm Early, who obviously was the DA at that time. And I interviewed with Norm a couple days later, and I got the job, and I came into your office, and I said, I'm ready to just jump for joy. I didn't even know what to say.
1: What part of town were you living in?
2: I was living in Littleton at that time.
1: Had you experience with downtown Denver?
2: Not really, but I'm very good with directions.
1: You came aboard at a time when crime was exploding. We're talking about bad crime now, but it was worse in 92, 93, the summer of violence. That was your baptism of fire. Am I right?
2: Yes, sir, it was. I distinctly recall my first case going in, and um, it was the Old Mexico Cafe homicide. It was your case assigned to you, and the widow of the victim came in with her son, and I thought, oh, my gosh, what am I into? And I just talked to her last week.
1: That happened right before Christmas 1992. Poor Jim Murray, mm-hmm. owner of the Old Mexico Cafe, 8th Avenue, um, East Denver. And a guy named Billy Joe Hankins went to rob him, and Jim Murray was armed, and they got in a gunfight, and they both shot each other. Jim Murray passed away. Horrible. And uh, Billy Joe Hankins stumbled away, leaving a blood trail. Not my most difficult case, by the way. And uh, he died incarcerated. So Marge Murray, what a great family. Uh, She was a great mom. And how is she?
2: She's doing fine. She's doing, uh, she laughs. Um, She's an Irish girl and she still laughs with me. We have great jokes together. She's doing really well.
1: Yeah, it's just unbelievable how different people handle things. You're the expert on it, Carol, but it's been my observation that everybody deals with grief and trauma in a different way.
2: Absolutely, Craig. There are no two cases that are alike. The one thing as a victim advocate is you better understand that everybody is a in- unique individual and treat them that way.
1: And that's particularly true of sex assault victims.
2: Oh, boy. Don't we know when we had the um, serial rapist case? Well,
1: we had a lot of serial rapists. I remember the Washington Park rapist. Were you on that, Theodore Castillo? Yes. That was a plea bargain. But yes. he had so many women and he would peep into their windows and somebody would come in, do bad things. But some of the women who were just peeped on were more traumatized than others and they were all entitled to their feelings, right?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And And were we together
1: for, uh, yeah, Molly Hammerberg, Uh who went public. Yes.
2: Remember her? I certainly do. Tell
1: the story of Molly.
2: Well, (laughs) it's kind of a uh, don't mess with Carol's story as an advocate. Molly was 19, so she was an adult, but we had discussions prior to this about what is it like to speak to the media before a trial happens. And so we let People make their own decisions. You let people make their own decisions, and talk about what is good and and what could be a problem. So uh, the lights and cameras went on when she ran out of the she ran out of the room, but kind of did, and she was giggling, and that's a normal response after a stressful preliminary hearing. And the cameras went right on her, so I had to discuss it with the media that that's not what her parents want, and to please discontinue that. Because next to me, I saw a defense attorney picking up a phone, and I knew that that defense attorney probably wasn't calling anybody, but wanted to hear what she had to say. See,
1: now that's going in a different direction than I anticipated, <laughs> because she was a victim of the Washington Park rapist She yeah. strayed into the country club area. Mm -hmm. And this young girl had been on one of the first dates for life. She went home. She had a basement unit in Mm -hmm. the house because she'd already graduated high school. And this serial rapist broke in, raped her. It was horrific. But she was a key witness. She identified him. And she became a prosecutor in Manhattan. And she wrote her term paper about this experience. And she went public. And she took the power back. And Molly Hammerberg ended up being on Channel 4, a bunch of other things, telling her story. That's why I'm saying her name now, because she took back the power and control, which is a rapist uh, motive. They want the power and the control. And she was able to flip it around on Ted Castillo. And uh, anyway, I, I just remember her that way. And she and I corresponded. She became a lawyer, a Manhattan prosecutor, Harvard Law School. She was brilliant. Her parents were brilliant, too. And so some people take a a bad event like that and they grow from it, right? She
2: did. And I have the opposite end of a story for you with one of the other victims. They recognized me. I was actually in Douglas County at the time. Mm-hmm. They saw me, recognized me immediately, which kind of startled me, and was at the opposite end of the spectrum, very angry, said we didn't tell her this stuff would happen. Well, you can tell somebody what traumatic right. response will be like, but whether it will stick in their brain or not is, is not something I'm I'm not a trained therapist So she was still very much in trauma from her sexual assault.
1: Here we are on July 23, recording for the July 24 show. July 23 is a date like any other date, but not for some people. People who remember that 28 years ago, Tom Holler was shot dead. His wife, Christina Holler, nearly murdered. That case unites us. And I've had a lot of cases, but that one stands out. How about for you?
2: Oh, absolutely. It stands out for me. I was reviewing in my mind last night some of the things that we did to orchestrate this trial in this heinous crime. And it was a tremendous amount of work, energy, um, brilliant investigation from the Denver Police Department, working in tandem with you. I mean, there are so many pieces to that case.
1: Well, let me see if I can acquaint the audience with what happened, and the trial was on Court TV, which was something we will talk about, but Tom and Christina Holler had been married one year. They owned a store called Immy Jimmy, which was on 13th Avenue, and Tom was a go-getter, and so was Christine. They were a wonderful couple, end of fashion, and that night they went to the Rockies game, they were playing at uh, Old Bear Stadium, which became Mile High Stadium before Coors Field was built. But it was exciting because the Rockies won that night, I think, 2-1, to one, if <laughs> I remember my opening statement. And then they went to uh, Rock Island Correct. for a fashion show. And uh, they got to participate as the fashion gurus that they were. Had a great night. Came home to their Capitol Hill apartment, the Chandra Marie. 11th in Corona, roughly right across from the King Supers, sometimes affectionately known as Queen Supers. I hope nobody minds. The Capitol Hill King Supers. But there was an apartment building there where they lived, but they never made it upstairs because uh, Shane Davis and Steve Harrington, two crip gang members, saw a beautiful woman, wanted her, took her. Tom fought. He got shot dead. Christina driven away in the Holler's Honda, which was uh, located later by Vince Lombardi and Dennis Hartvigson as they patrolled, looking all throughout the city for this woman who had been hijacked, carjacked, her husband shot dead, cradled as he died by his good friend Christian Bear, who's a friend of mine. I talked to, to him yesterday. He deals with that trauma. Christina found, and they thought she was dead. Her head the size of a pumpkin, and she moved, startling the officers, and great doctoring allowed her to recover, and she became the beautiful presence that she's always been in her life. She was able to testify at the trial and become a part of our lives. Christina Holler, we love you, and... That's my July 23rd memories, what happened that awful day 28 years ago.
2: That's exactly what I remember. Um, Part of it was sort of an offshoot of the story. I didn't realize at the time that it was Harvickson and Lombardi that found her, and I was doing a ride-along, as we often did in victim services. We were allowed to ride with Denver Police and see what they do on the job, and We started to talk about different things, and they told me that they were the people that found her. And remember, Craig, the cars in Denver at that time had that really, it's a police car sound, and all it took was that sound and that one glimpse down that alley, and that was it. The defendants got out of the car, took off, and I remember them telling me that they thought Christina had died.
1: There was a whole boatload of circumstantial evidence. I can't put it all together, but it was a complicated case. But I was confident that we got the right guys. How about you?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, There's no doubt in my mind you got the right guys.
1: What do you remember about the trial? You were new, and what stands out when you think about that case and how we got involved?
2: You know, um, several things stand out to me. The number of witnesses that we had, during trial was 60. It went on for four weeks. Am I right?
1: No, I don't think it went that long. Not
2: that not quite that long. Okay. But it was 60 witnesses. And so it's part of the victim. We were called victim witness advocates at the Denver DA's office. Part of our responsibility was to coordinate those witnesses based on what you gave to us as your list in the order that you wanted them. That takes a tremendous amount of organization in addition to watching out for the family. Thank God I had an intern, I'll say her first name, Jean, at that time, young girl, vibrant, 21, and she was on it. I mean, she made sure those witnesses were right where they needed where I needed them. Because as you remember, Craig, one of the things that stands out in my mind is the little tiny room next to courtroom 16, Judge room's courtroom, and I was stuffed in there with a couple other media people and Dan Abrams. And we had to, because we didn't have all the media technology that we had today, we had to make sure that there were about 10 people that did not want to be on court TV. And we wanted to honor that because they were witnesses. And one time, one started to get on TV, and I had to run back in and say, cut it off, cut it off, take him off and so they did they, I think they
1: This was back when court TV was really pretty big and Dan Abrams was brand new yeah. and who knew he was going to grow into the dominant media presence, but he was out there for all the weeks of the trial.
2: Absolutely. I remember thinking back uh, now Craig and saying I was like a duck. So as a duck goes across the lake, it's a nice calm duck, right? But underneath, it's paddling like
1: anything. <laughs> could you see that Dan Abrams was going to be a star?
2: You know, I thought maybe. I did. I thought he did. He had the presence about him. He was intelligent. He was very kind. He didn't act like he was some big media dude. But um, no, I thought he could be. And I see, every time I see him, I think, oh, I was in the room with that man.
1: <laughs> right. He's uh, He's something else. His father, the famous... First Amendment lawyer, Floyd Abrams, um, just having a case on TV. I remember waiting for the verdict, walking Mm -hmm. around the mall. That's always a difficult time. And people would say, is there a verdict? And I've never really had that. Where people stop you on the street and say, because they were following it on court TV. I said, no, not yet. And uh, good luck, It, it I think people in the town were fixated on that trial like few trials I've seen in this city.
2: Well, I would agree. I mean, you had this beautiful, young, up-and-coming couple, and there were pictures of their wedding day, and people could relate. They were just real people, their, their cute little store called, as you said, Immy Jimmy. Do you know how it got that name, Craig? No. Okay. I do know the story to that. Um, it might have been from Nedra. I'm not sure. Tom's mother, Um, there was an older man that would always hang out outside the store. Maybe he was homeless at the time. None of us really know. And Tom would talk to him, as Tom would, right? And he would say, Iwo Jima, Iwo Jima. But he said it in a a slurred manner. And that's where he came up with Jimmy Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jimmy.
1: We never met Tom. At least I don't think I did. He came out from Michigan, and a lot of people knew Tom Holler. And the thing that I've gotten through the years, and I bet you have too, is let me tell you this about Tom. And he was invariably described as somebody who was going to go far, a people person, just really a dynamo. And it's unbelievable that his life got cut short right there. But then you also hear from people who say, I heard this shot that killed Tom Holler because that was densely packed Capitol Hill. People heard that shot at one in the morning, and they realized that that was the shot, and then the, the car squealed off. But Christina came back to life, and some people are just made to be on television. is a beautiful person, and her beauty shone through on television and in pictures. And back then, we didn't have the Internet But we had fax machines, and I would get faxed marriage proposals to Christina Holler as I went back to the office to prepare for the next day, because people fell in love with her. Everybody did. Everybody wanted to love her and protect her, and I'm so happy to report that after this tragedy and after a series of interesting and beautiful relationships, she found another love of her life. And got married and has had beautiful children and is doing well in another state. And uh, I just love to tell that part of the story.
2: Yeah, she was everything you said she was. She, and she was so petite. So she could look so vulnerable, but she had inner strength that was incredible.
1: Right, petite, which is another way of saying she was slender. Very much. Which is perfect for television, which puts about 10 pounds on you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But she was, she just has a presence about her, and people could see that. And do you remember the name of the doctor who fixed her up? I don't. Before? It was E.O. Wig, because I had another case involving— uh, uh, baseball players who had their orbital bone broken he had repaired theirs as well but I know Lisa Willis was my victim advocate on that case she? this was back in the day and before she became a lawyer but the holler case, we're thinking about it the other thing that made it memorable for a lot of people and really for me I, I wasn't experiencing it all the time but do you remember Steve Harrington and the way he would look at me?
2: Oh yeah Wasn't pleasant.
1: (laughs) That guy stared darts through me throughout. This was one of the murderers. Although, if we think about it, which one did what? I don't remember which one did what. Right. And Christina was found naked in the car, too, another despicable fact. And we couldn't prove necessarily what they'd done. She was near death, but got brought back. But Truth be told, we proved that they were together all night and they were in that car together and they were complicit with each other. But there was a debate about capital punishment, and that was one problematic point to the defense of Bill Ritter, who was our boss at the time, taking over for Normally. Anyway. It's so good to talk to you about the Holler case, but you went on to so much more. Here I ran against Bill Ritter in 96, and uh, I'm out of the office not long thereafter. You know, I, I resigned to run. I thought that was only fair. But you've made a career of it. How how many decades in victim advocacy? Uh,
2: 25 years. 25 years in victim services. That's beautiful. Yeah. And
1: tell yeah. everybody... How you became this—well, su- you were already a superstar, but you became, uh, through this baptism of fire, that had to set you up well for whatever was to come, right? Oh,
2: it really did. I, I learned so much under your toolage. I I remember you saying to me six months into my career as a victim advocate, why don't you go to law school? I think you'd be a great trial attorney. And I said, oh, Craig, I, I don't think at this point in my life I want to do that. And he said, no, um, the office would pay for it, and then you'd have a job afterwards, and you could still work here. And I thought, oh, that's a little more than I can take on. But it was a great compliment. I have never forgotten it. But I really felt that my calling in life, and I believe it's a calling, was to be a victim advocate. And you gave me that opportunity, and I'll never forget that.
1: So where did you go after the Denver Deers? So How long did you stay?
2: I went and spent twenty years in Castle Rock and started their Victims Assistance Program. Um, as you know, Castle Rock was a one stoplight town at that time, and I stepped into something because I wanted to be a coordinator of a program. And I thought, oh, am I doing the right thing? I coming from Denver, which I was very enthralled with the city. I'm kind of a city girl, but. I stepped into there, and I had a wonderful chief Chief tony Lane and they hired me on the spot and Wow, I never would have dreamt that it would have taken me to the places that I got to experience throughout my career
1: that's fantastic, and Castle Rock has now become your home. it's yes, grown it has. unbelievably, but a lot of major events happened while you were there.
2: yes, they did i. I actually responded to five mass disasters, and I think a lot of that was because my chief was so supportive of victim services that he would let me take some time and go ahead and take care of the people in the mass disasters.
1: Tell everybody about those.
2: Uh, Well, my first one was Columbine High School shooting. And when it happened that day, you know, we were starting to get into the phone technology. We got away from the pagers, if you remember the wonderful right. pagers. And we saw that there Those was... Those
1: pagers like, were great <laughs> during my bachelor days, bad first date. Oh, the pager went off. Damn, I'm on homicide duty. Somebody just got shot. They might be dying.
2: Only you. Only you.
1: I think others probably did that. <laughs>
2: But um, so we had heard about it. Now, we did something that you don't do today is we had a great contingency of victim services in Douglas County. My colleague, Patty, at Douglas County Sheriff's Office, myself, and then my colleague, Nancy, over at Parker PD. So we really were pioneers in this field. And there's many pioneers through Colorado that are, have done wonderful work in victim services. We're proud to say we're one of the best states in the country as right. far as victim services. And not
1: only have we dealt with our own tragedies, but the Oklahoma City bombing absolutely, through you know, Denver, Robin Finnegan, and I'm sure you've been counting her. Mm-hmm. Well, well, what was the other mass casualty thing you responded to?
2: I responded to 9-11. Oh, my God. Yeah, I did. Um, there were eight women sent through COVA, Colorado Organization of Victims' Assistance based in Denver, And I got a call. Would I be interested in responding? Of course I was. I left on December the 8th. We were dispatched for eight days because they wanted people not to have too much time on one scene. And yes, unfortunately, I did see the fire still burning at the um, the site. And I actually worked in Jersey City. And I wrote a story about it, about what it was like driving in that night and what it was like in the hallways and almost hearing the immigrants of the past because that's where they came after Ellis Island. It was a very surreal experience.
1: My gosh, you're talking about moments in American history, Columbine, 9-11, what else?
2: Um, We had people come here from Hurricane Katrina. So they were flighted in and they had no idea where they were going to be. Imagine leaving your home with... The shirt on your back and maybe a backpack if you were lucky. And some people, God love them, had their dogs. And I got on the first plane that arrived. And you have to, you know, keep your control and tell them where they are. And they were, what? We're in Denver? And tell them we're here to take care of them and to help them get through this time. And it was kind of scary to them because they were, you know, anybody could be on that plane, including a criminal maybe with a warrant. We weren't checking those types of things. We were here to take care of the people.
1: Wow. Another American history story. What else? What, what's the next mass tragedy?
2: The Aurora shooting. The Aurora right. theater shooting.
1: I was with my brother in Las Vegas. And it's like, uh, why do we even go to Las Vegas? Because how could you enjoy anything after that? The, the following Monday, I was on with Bill O'Reilly trying to explain that one like I had tried to explain Columbine to Geraldo Rivera the night that happened but uh, that's kind of my role but you're dealing with the actual victims by by now you've got the experience
2: (laughs) yeah more than I ever thought I would have that's for certain but um Again, I feel very blessed that I was able to help people. I was looking through some files after you called, and I saw the number. I've never published them. I've never shown them to anybody, all the thank-you notes and letters I get. And, you know, as you know, we weren't supposed to take presents from people or gifts or anything of that nature, being government workers. But there were people who would bring me a small book in, and I checked with my chief and said, Is it okay that I accept you don't want to turn a person who's been victimized down? And so I looked at that and thought, wow, I really was appreciated.
1: I'm scared to ask, any more after Aurora?
2: Yes. Arapahoe High School shooting. Claire Levy? Yes.
1: That was horrible.
2: Yes. I actually was at the reunification center with Sheriff Spurlock, and we were trying to reunify the families with their children. So as you know, that's the terrible feeling is who's gone or who isn't. And so we, because we had experience, we knew how to do it.
1: And didn't you know Zach Parrish Jr.? Zach Parrish yes. the third, excuse me. Yes, I did. The late Zach Parrish the third. Yes,
2: I worked with him for three years at Castle Rock Police. Wonderful, kind, dedicated police officer. Gone way too soon.
1: I did a show on the red flag law. I was for it. I know. So was Zach Parrish's father. Zach Parrish Jr. And so am I. He called from Texas. Way to go.
2: Yeah, so am I. (laughs)
1: And then I had Gracie Parrish on. You talk about goosebumps to have Gracie Parrish honor my show. We fought for that red flag line. That started a lot of divisiveness. You know about it. You live in Castle Rock. I do. Sheriff Spurlock was part of that show.
2: Absolutely.
1: absolutely. Back then, Brockler Backed it mm-hmm. the first go around. Mm-hmm. And the bill is named after Zach Parrish. Again, to tell that story. A, a deranged lawyer of all things holed up in his condo. There were warrants. He was causing all sorts of craziness. Shot Zach Parrish, who responded to help him. ZP3, one of the greatest guys in the world, leaves behind a young family. What a tragedy. And you knew Zach. I never knew. I did.
2: Zach was the kind of officer that people are trying to make departments into. More of a social worker kind of guy. He really wanted to help people. He really did. In his deepest heart and his deepest level. And as we know, there are times when people are in mental crisis, whether it is drugs alcohol or just plain mental illness, which is significantly, significantly I can say that word twice, um, severe. And that wasn't his first encounter, I don't believe, with this gentleman. And, no. And that um, guy,
1: yeah, he, he was a bad guy. Yeah. But he had mental health difficulties. Yeah, he, did. he but
2: did. What
1: is it about you that makes you the ideal person for this role? Can I explain what I think it is? You have sure. empathy, and your approach is nice, and it's Thank comforting. You. In the Jewish language, we have a term, Hamish You are family. You come in, and you're, you're motherly, too. Is that okay for me to say?
2: Absolutely, it is. I know
1: you take such pride in being a good mother.
2: I I, I appreciate that comment, and yes, I do become like the mother in the home, and there was a case where... Um, There was a homicide up north, and we do death notifications for other agencies because none of us want to have somebody called over the telephone and given that information. And it was a very high-profile case, and I had 25 people in the house that day. And there were a lot of youngsters. And through the grace of God, I had enough teddy bears because I had a teddy bear program at Castle Rock Police. And when we interacted with children, we made sure... Everyone was the same, so no, I have three grandchildren, so I know one doesn't want one that's pink and one that's blue. They were all teddy bear colors, and uh, every child got a teddy bear, including some of the adults that wanted it.
1: (laughs) I don't know how to deal with grieving people, except my parents taught me pretty well. There's a custom in the Jewish tradition that you go to people's homes with COVID, not so much, but it's sitting shiva and... I would say, I don't want to go. What am I going to say? And my father, in his wisdom, said, well, well, first of all, quit thinking about yourself. And second of all, nobody's expecting a speech from you. All you need to say is, I'm so sorry for your loss. And then let it go from there. That's all anybody can say. I'm so sorry for your loss. It's more complicated than that, but isn't that a good start? Isn't oh, that a good advice from my papa? Oh,
2: that's a, a words of wisdom I would never forget. Because your presence means more than your words. Right. Being there, seeing them, they look in your eyes. You look in their eyes. There don't have to be words speaking. Spoken. Well, that's a good one. Um, but all you have to do is look at somebody, and if you're empathetic, they see it right in your eyes. You don't have to say a word. Quiet is beautiful.
1: I watched a TED Talk where the most <clears throat> important thing is compassion, empathy. And you have that in abundance. But some people don't, and you can't fake it. But you tell me, how do you approach it when, when you first meet somebody? Is that what you say at the start, I'm sorry for your loss?
2: Absolutely. You know, it it depends on the situation, how I'll word it. But I'm very careful in selecting my words, and I have a lot of practice at it, unfortunately. And again, sometimes it's sitting in silence and knowing that silence is okay. I learned a lesson, Craig, that I think is important that people should know. You know, sometimes in life when somebody's crying, they push a box of Kleenex towards you. And I always said, have a box of Kleenex available. Don't push it towards somebody. And you might say, well, why would I not? Well, why would you? Are you telling them to stop crying? Right. So those are things that I learned along the way. A big thing I learned during the Holler case, and I was new, so I made a mistake. And Mr. Holler gave me a big hug afterwards. And he was crying. And I said, it's okay. What I meant was it's okay to cry. What he thought was I meant to, it's okay that this is over. Mm-hmm. And he said it's not okay, and I learned a huge lesson that day. Mm. Never say it's okay. Just say it's okay to cry because people are embarrassed. They feel I shouldn't be crying. I don't want to cry so much. I said it's okay to cry. That's what you need to do. Tears are actually healing. There's studies that show tears of sadness have a specific chemical element to them that help your body heal.
1: And the raw emotions that can happen in a courtroom, it's really pretty profound because people go to trials or watch them on TV and it can be boring, tedious, but it's like a freight train and it can pick up speed and it can be one of the most dramatic things on earth when you get to closing arguments, key witnesses, the verdict.
2: I mean, there's nothing like it. Absolutely. There isn't. I mean, everybody's on edge, you know, and then I remember other DAs would come over to watch for the verdict or watch the closing arguments just to see and learn how you worked and to see, you know, what's the verdict going to be. I mean, there's high, high tension in the room. Very high. And we remember that there are defendants, family members and friends in right. that room as well.
1: Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we have to keep that in mind, and we have to keep in mind, even though that looks like a very sad mother of whomever is on trial, I can't do anything about that.
1: You didn't just work for me. You worked for other lawyers. I did. Who stands out through the years?
2: Gloria Rivera. Gloria Rivera. Love Gloria. Yeah, she was a wonderful attorney, very empathetic, extremely empathetic. Very detail-oriented. Sharon Allison, I liked working with her. Stephanie Viaforte, I liked working with her. When I went to the Crimes Against um, Family unit, basically, we did all domestic violence, felonies, and crimes against children in the DA's office. And they were a great group of people to work with.
1: All women. What did you have against men?
2: Well, we didn't, but the men didn't really want to be in that unit. And I can understand some of it. Most of us didn't have small children at the time, so it made it a little easier to digest these crimes because they're pretty heinous against children. And people that had small children didn't normally want to be in that unit.
1: What about you? Did you ever worry about burnout? Was it ever too much?
2: Um. No, I never did worry about burnout. I, I knew when it was time to retire. Um. I was over 65, and I thought, you know, you just know when you know. And people say, well, how did you take care of yourself? I am a woman of a faith, so I think my faith is really what got me through all of this. It has to be, because I believe that I was picked up and put in your office that day on that interview.
1: <laughs> and as a person of faith, you believe in the afterlife?
2: I do. I do. That must
1: help. It does. When dealing with death. It does. Well, what's your vision of the afterlife?
2: My vision is reunification. First, love of God. His love is almighty and powerful. But the reunification of loved ones, I believe that we'll see them afterwards.
1: But what happens with Christina? I mean, is she reunited with Tom? What about her new husband?
2: I don't know. I don't know those answers. <laughs>
1: I thought maybe you learned that at your church.
2: No, I don't know exactly. There's there's still a mystery.
1: I can tell you, you are a beautiful spirit. And that shone through in this wonderful interview. I can't thank you enough. Um, People dealing with July 23rd, I may head out to Capitol Hill tonight. I think Nedra's going to be there. We became close. That's the way I want to wrap it up, because... Sometimes you stay close with people from those cases, but you have to also kind of move on to the next case, right? And people realize that. And some people, you worry, well, am I reminding them of a bad event or how does it affect them? How do you strike that balance?
2: I think that's a, a really good question, Craig, because I didn't choose to live in Castle Rock while I worked there because I had really bad news to share with people. I wasn't Even though I took care of them, I could be a bad reminder in the grocery store, in the pharmacy, wherever you do your business. So after I retired, we decided to to relocate there. But I'm with you. Am I a bad reminder? I mean, for some people, I probably am. And they'd never want to see me again. It's not that they didn't like me. It was just that I had to speak the word.
1: Well, not for me.
2: Thank you. are a beautiful you. <laughs> reminder. You saw me
1: in my prime, and I yes, don't know I if did. that was a good or a bad thing. Oh, it was
2: great. It was great. I had to straighten your tie a few times. I won't forget that because I am older than you, and I'd say, oh, okay, come on, let's fix this up here and make you look all great to go into court. We're going to court today.
1: I was more focused on what I was going to say. Absolutely. Thank God you were there today.
2: Absolutely. You were very focused and... Uh, your office showed it. I mean, you had a lot of, a lot of papers around, but uh, I can tell you, any time I went in there, if I needed something, you knew where it was.
1: Was I too focused?
2: Um, too focused? No, I don't think so. I mean, so because
1: I, mean, you, I was intense. I hope I was no, okay to work with. absolutely. I was competitive. That's, yes. That's the thing about me. It's my biggest asset and my liability. I'm very competitive.
2: Yeah, I think competitive was good because you want to win. And when we're working with people's lives, you want to win. No, you weren't too intense because we knew who you were, and we knew when to step in and when to step back and when to give you your space because that was important because if you were thinking of notes for the next uh, line of questioning, no, no bothering you, you know.
1: Well, I apologize if I did anything (laughs) (laughs) different. you. You, I launched you into a beautiful career. (laughs) How many awards have you won?
2: You know, it's funny funny that you would ask that. I did go through more than dozens. Uh, I went through some of my memorabilia just two days ago and didn't realize. And I even said to my husband, wow, I didn't realize. Because it wasn't about the awards to me. It wasn't about that at all. I'm honored that I got to them. I met two presidents of the United States of America um, on the job and up close and personal in conversations. But it wasn't about that. It was all about how can I help this person get to the next step.
1: The world is a better place because of Carol Malaysia, M A L E Z I J A. Thanks a lot for doing this podcast.
2: Thanks, Craig. My pleasure.
1: Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life.
3: So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's gonna happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know, who's going to get it. We've got everything in place. So we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency. But the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's it's like the, the smooth transition of power.
1: That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical pilot. of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like michael bailey because who should have this it's probably somebody close who do you trust most among your children to make that call These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right,
3: Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here, we've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care.
1: There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days?
3: best way uh, you can give me a call my phone number is 720-394-6887 and again that's 720-394-6887 or you can go online to Michael Law com, and there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use so either way is fine
1: thanks michael Hello, Mr. Valadares, please.
4: Yeah, this is T5 right here.
1: Hey, T5. I've got a troubadour here named David Gunders, and he says that you two know each other. Is that true?
4: Oh, that is so true. We have known each other since the college dorms at CU. Many, many, many moons ago, we started playing music together and. Just hung together through all the years it's incredible and was
1: it music that brought you together or absolutely
4: other- when we lived in the dorms um, <clears throat> I had an acoustic guitar and Dave lived two floors below me in the same room and he had an acoustic guitar. And we would get together and just start playing for hours and we'd have these other crazy guys. You know, we'd get like, you know, some beers or a bottle of Jack and, and just start uh, playing music. And other guys would be playing with pencils on cups and stuff. And we brought our two styles together. You know, I was a Beatles and uh, uh, just I had all my my groups and he had his. And, and we, we, we crossed a lot Wait, of lines. Let me was,
1: stop you there because I know about my troubadour. We've done over 50 shows together. We've taken countless walks. Is this a classic, you were the Beatles and he was the Rolling Stones?
4: Not really. I mean, oh, he, okay. he we, we both loved both groups, but but I tended to play a lot of Beatles songs. And, you know, Dave brought in more things like, uh, you know, he had his groups and I had mine, like, like I probably brought in more Neil Young and he brought in more uh, Simon and Garfunkel and Grateful Dead. And so, you know, between us and, and the concerts were just so incredible at CU during that time, whether they were in the field house or, or, or the football field, the Folsom stadium. And um, we, we, it was just chock-a-block full, you know, with, with wonderful music. And then you had like the B level groups like Taj Mahal and the Eagles even playing at Talagi's on the hill. So it was just an incredible time for music. And uh, we just came together and, and played and then kind of went our separate ways after college, but not for long. And then I jumped into a band, you know, when I, after I tried law school and graduate school, you know, for public administration. And, and I just said, no, no, no. You know, I went back and bought an electric guitar and jumped in the first band that would take me, which happened to be like a progressive country band, believe it or not. And, and I changed. I kind of took over the band and started changing all the song styles pretty quickly. But, Can I um, just I... tell you,
1: and I'm not a musician, but when you went, uh-huh. nah, 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 I, I think uh-huh. that might work in a song. Right. Hey, hey, goodbye. Yeah, anyway, absolutely. Correct, you're, you're, so well, so let, right. me, let me slow you down a little, T, because I want to back <laughs> okay. up. One, right. David Gunders is right here, and he's got a smile on his face, but I'd like to start with the name game and see how well you know Dave Gunders and stop talking Uh, about these little bands like the Grateful Dead, the Rolling Stones, and the Beatles and start naming your bands and how you guys dominated the Boulder music scene and still are. But let's start with the name game because you guys are prolific songwriters and you come up with titles all the time, but... Let's start with your fascinating name, because up until this week, I only knew you as the Troubadour's bandmate and good buddy T. He never even said T5, and he never said Validarius, which is an incredible name. Talk about your name and uh, the royalty you come from.
4: Okay, well, uh, well, in a nutshell t five was was a change of name that I got in college. My college roommate was a writer, and he would include his friends and all his you know get high psychedelic wild stories and um kind of like a John Lennon type writer, you know what I mean He just really played with words a lot, which is something both Dave and I like to do a lot and even I even make up lots of words in my songs if I, if i don 't have a rhyme i 'll make it up but anyway, anyway he he had these these uh, stories, these short stories, and they would evolve over time. And eventually, like you know, I was this you know count, I was count numbers, and someone else was the Duke Duke of Roaches. And then later on, it became like Thomas the Fifth, Thomas Five, T Five, and then everyone in the dorm started calling me T Five. Is that your and, given name, Thomas? No, no, well, no it's not at all. What is your
1: given name? Can I ask?
4: Yeah, my my given. I grew up. I I was born Roderick. So I was, I was like Roddy, like Roddy McDowell and then got to high school and became Rod. And and I always hated that name. So I was happy to have a name change. and Probably got you know, that
1: my, hot rod crap thrown
4: at you, right? Of course, of course. And, 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 you know, and, and, uh, you know, my parents couldn't stand that I changed my name, especially the name I changed it to. People would call up and say, hi, can I speak to T5? And they'd go, oh, T5, someone on the phone for you. But, but they came around and, um. But and at least uh, they, you didn't
1: change Valadares, And no, that,
4: uh, yeah, Valaderes, I looked
1: it up. Yeah. And tell everybody just how historic a name that is.
4: Well, Valadares or Valladares uh, comes from Pontevedra, Spain, which is right above Portugal. And so there are a lot of Portuguese with the name Valladares. In Spanish, it's got two L's. It's Valladares because the double L is like a Y. And um, they came over during colonial times and were actually merchants in, in uh, Mexico. And then as they moved south, they saw that there was, you know, um, opportunity in, in Central America. And they, so they centered themselves in Guatemala. And that's where my dad and my mom are both from. My dad's father was an international lawyer practicing in New York City when uh, the, uh, the stock market crashed. Okay, and he had he had one one partner who jumped out the window, on a 42nd floor, and the other one ate his gun. But my grandfather was a, a young lawyer, like 35, with three young kids and a wife, living on Riverside Drive, the high life. And and from the next day, he was like trying to sell encyclopedias in New Jersey, and so he hung out for about eight years, and then said this is not cutting it, so he moved back to Guatemala and became a lawyer. You know, opened up his practice there. And he practiced there and in Mexico City the rest of his life. So the, the Ayatadas are pretty prominent in Guatemala, to, even to the point where I have uh, one of my father's first cousins, my uncle. He's he's been Attorney General there a couple of times, and that's a that's a, a big plus and a big minus. You know what I mean? I I just stay out of the politics in those third world countries because I have a hard enough time trying to swallow the four years we just went through and, and what's been going on right. in this country, trying to bring it back together. Come on, people. Anyway, so so that's the Valladares uh, heritage there. And so, you know, I grew up, My dad was my, my dad and his two other brothers that were born in New York City had dual citizenship, joined the U.S. military when they were 18 or 19 and came to the States.
1: Okay. Now, let's find out how much you know about Dave Gunders. What? Okay. What was his father's given name? And his father's still alive and doing great. What's his name?
4: Gunders, uh, Gunders, and it was probably changed to Gunders from uh, I'm not sure Gunderson. And and um, his father was you know a victim of no, the Holocaust. No, no, wasn't Gunderson. And he was. He did have to flee Munich. T-
1: Troubadour, take over this story.
5: T, it's right, time on, you man. learn our German name, which which was Gunderheimer.
4: Oh, Gunderheimer,
1: okay. Right. And have you met
4: Henry? Dude. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know Henry. I've known Henry through the years. Henry and I go way back and, you know, uh, not only was I the black sheep in my family, I think I was the black sheep in Henry's mind, too, because, you know, um, you know, Dave turned to playing music and that was a shock for all our families. You know, we were both headed down the road to, you know, being lawyers or doctors or whatever. So, you know, um, but he was supportive and he was always very kind and, you know, and generous to us. And uh, he's an amazing, brilliant, brilliant man. And uh, he's been a guest
1: just like you now. Tell everybody how you guys went out on the road, your band, how you did it. Tell us about your musical career.
4: Well, Dave and I were um, songwriters and, and, and musicians. And, you know, we started out just we always went back to the core, which was Dave and myself, and so we called ourselves T5 and Davis as a duo, and so we went out and just started out playing all the, you know, uh, Swallow Hill and the Folklore Center in Denver, and we'd have three songs for each place each week. Then we got up enough repertoire in a couple of months that we started playing in clubs. We both had a very strong business sense, and we could go in there and sweet talk our ways or strong arm or whatever we had to do, you know, to, to get the gigs, and before you know it, we were playing regularly and supporting ourselves. What years are we that, talking about right there? And that was uh, seventy-eight, seventy-nine, and then and then and then we moved to Boulder, and so then we started. Um, we were playing clubs in Boulder, you know, and uh, all of the clubs, the you know, the Boulderado Hotel on the mezzanine, the the. Uh, J.J. McCabe's the Walrus. We, you know, wherever we hardly ever had to leave Boulder, but we kept a, a gig down in Denver at Josephina's on Larimer Square because they loved us. The, the, usually, the, the the crew always loved us, and and but anyway. So, time so out.
1: What was- I was in Boulder for law school, 1978 uh-huh. to 1981, and I right. would go to the Walrus and all those
4: places. I bet I watched you guys, T Five probably- and Dave. Yeah. You probably did, Craig. And 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 so what happened was along the way, the Walrus told us, you know, we love you guys. You know, we love you. Played here a couple of years, but you know, we're starting to get full bands. And I said, Well, if you give us more money, we'll add we'll add a drummer. And they said, Oh, you got it. So then we added a drummer and started playing with a drummer, you know, and then and then we added um some other instruments. And for you know, we had a we had a full-fledged band that was like a little Little Feed Almond Brothers. Grateful Dead band. It was, it was like a biker band and we were playing, you know, clubs in in Boulder, but also clubs in Denver, like Daners and, you know, these, these clubs like that. And um, we had like some of the best musicians around because we could keep them, you know, supported. Dave and I were good at getting the gigs. And so then along the way, I mean, that, that band, even we played a gig with uh, David Grissman in Fort Collins, a festival. And when he found out we were a rock band, he insisted on going on after us because he didn't want it. He didn't want to go on after such a high-energy group. And so, um, so that so then uh, what happened? So, was— so
1: you had to split from the duo name. What name did you come up with for the
4: band? Travel, Traveling shoes. Traveling shoes. Right. We were traveling shoes and uh, we had great musicians like Rob Rio, who's a real, you know, well-known boogie woogie piano player out in L.A. now. He's from the Bronx, New York. Chucky from Chucky and the Cyclones and uh, uh, Hillbilly Hellcats. You know, we just had we we had we had this this drummer from Lafayette, Louisiana, who for the last 30 years or something, has been playing with the band Beausoleil down in the New Orleans area. And um, speaking of so, music,
1: and you mentioned Chucky, e, didn't Chucky e Weiss just die and he had a Colorado connection? Chucky e
4: Weiss?
1: Yeah, the the one who's that song Chucky's e in Love was written about him. Colorado oh, Chuck, musical Oh, character. you're right. You're right. Chucky e Weiss.
4: Yeah, I, I didn't know about yeah, that. He, yeah, he just Rick, passed Ricky Lee Jones. Ricky Lee Jones. Yeah. Oh, and that's and sad. Chuck
1: Morris, he knew him. So this musical world. It, are you making a living at it? Are you supporting your family? How's it going?
4: You mean right now? No,
1: I'm talking about seventy-eight to eighty-one. We're we're going well, slow well, we mo were, through your career.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were bachelors and we were living hand to mouth on the music, but we were we were we were eking out an existence and. We were really, really, you know, well-known in Boulder, especially when we had our later band, the Scotter Brains. You know, I mean, we would go to Rocky Mountain Joe's, and the guy would say, you know, oh, I'm going to buy you breakfast. I love you guys so much, you know, and, and we'd be like, okay, we're putting you on our guest list, you know, and it was just kind of trades and things like that, you know. But, but you know, we, Can we, we eat Can I just bring
1: out. up that the best breakfast still in the world was the aristocrat on the Boulder Mall
4: in Boulder? Oh, it, you went for that you went for that aristocrat bomb, oh huh?
1: <laughs> my God, I took on that challenge, and the village coffee shop on Folsom. those were yep. some two greasy omelette places that I loved.
4: Where right, was the place right.
1: you're talking about uh,
4: uh oh, the place on time was Rocky Mountain Joe's. it was on on the Pearl street mall, and it was the same people that that uh the same guys that owned uh Chautauqua,
1: okay, so yeah. Dave is a mountain climber. Did you accompany him on, you know, he he almost got killed on the Tetons? We've heard all his mountain climbing stories.
4: I did, I did climb with Dave to the point where he took me past my, my ability limit and, and it was just got, it got too hairy. You know what I mean? My arms are yes. blowing out, my legs are blowing out. And I said, you know, you guys need to go, go ahead and conquer the higher, you know, the harder climbs here. And, and I probably need to go, you know, tuck my tail between my legs and go climb with some, some beginners, You know, and so um, but but it was fun. We climbed the the, the flat irons together. We climbed the the bitty buttress, you know, know, the elephant buttress, you know, right in in the canyon and boulder. Yeah, I I can take on that. I'm
1: like you, T. I'm like our troubadour. (laughs) But you brought up the Scotter brains. And I love that because I was never sure how to pronounce it. Right. But it's Ska, the musical style that Dave Gunders loves. Did he bring that to you or did you bring that to him?
4: no uh actually um we were playing in that band traveling shoes and what and what happened was you know i was getting into like uh punk music at the time and and i was having like an identity crisis I, a musical crisis because music was just getting too perfected for me like the steely dan they were hiring the best musicians and making them play the same thing 50 times and then it was hard for them to tour because they couldn't find players that could you know play to their expectations and And so so uh, all of a sudden the Sex Pistols and the Ramones came out. And I love the Ramones from uh, Rockaway Beach, New York, and because they were silly and goofy and they were like going all the way back to like, you know, the roots of rock and roll and just playing three chord music and being silly. And uh, the Sex Pistols. I want to hold your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, rocka rocka rocka, rocka rockaway bees I da, got da, it. Da. and then you know and they do like uh do you wanna dance? Da, 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 da. You just really really fast and, and three chord pounding pounding chords. You know, like they, they do uh like a version of uh California Sun, remember that song? So she walks and she talks and she does and she does and we're out there having fun in the warm California sun. Da da doo doo do, doo do, doo 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 Anyway, that, anyway that, I'm going to so-
1: post, you know, you put it out there, and I'm going to post okay. some Brain videos. Oh, and you be guys fabulous. are sillier than the troubadour comes up on our show. His <sighs> modern music is kind of deep and contemplative, but back then, my God, he was not only singing silly, he was dancing silly, and so were the rest yeah. of you. What was up yeah. with that?
4: Well... Well, uh, OK, I'm going to back up a minute because you asked me about who brought Scott or who. So yes. so Dave, Dave and I, um, I was getting into that other kind of music and then later like the Pretenders and Joe Jackson and, you know, all those all those groups like that. And and there was this band coming through town that I'd heard of and they were called the English Beat. And there was a DJ in Boulder, um, E.C. Herb, that used to turn me on. She used to make me these cassette you know, mixtapes with the latest music on them. And so Dave and I went down to a little club in North Denver that was like a, a disco, but every once in a while they would have a touring band. We saw this band, Craig, the English beat. And from the first note, we j- jumped right out of our seats, ran right up to the front, and danced the whole time. And we walked out of there saying... We have to play this kind of music. So we went and we, we broke up Traveling Shoes, that band. We knew all those guys would do well on their own or in other bands. And we went back to being a duo and started writing ska music. And so then we started adding, we added a drummer and we were just a three-piece playing ska with no horns, no anything. Then we added a horn to the saxophone player. Okay, and then what was it
1: about Scott? Was it that it gets people up and dancing and high energy and
4: it's it's all of that. For me, for me, what what I love about Scott is what you said before. It can be political, but it can also be completely silly, goofy, fun. It doesn't take itself so seriously. And I think that's very important. Okay, it's got a lightheartedness to it. People respond to it. And when you have a packed house sweating and just, you know, like just undulating up, down, back and forth and joyously repeating the the choruses, there's nothing better than that. That's transcendent is what it is.
1: Okay, we're going to talk about a number of songs, but a song that I'd like to feature right now because it's gone a little viral and it's in my head to my detriment. Is that Scott, that song
4: Color TV? It is it is um it it's classic because um I can't get it
1: out of my head
4: well that makes me happy because I I I wrote that song and I wanted a classic ska sound that featured the saxophone so basically I sang those parts to the sax player. I may have played him on the guitar, but I sang him to him and, and he picked them up. We had a, you know, very talented sax player and um, he made up all his own solos, but I sang him the, the melody line. And then I wrote that song about my father who was, you know, he was from the depression era. You know, he was tired at the end of the day. He just wanted to come home, turn on the TV and sit in front of it till he fell asleep. And so um, I wrote that song as, you know, a tongue in cheek about my father where, you know, they come and they, you know, he, he, he stops caring about anything. And, you know, the, the powers that become and they, they, they uh, repossess his, you know, his home and his car and they take away his, you know, his, his cable. They cut his cable. So now he's stuck watching all the reruns of, you know, Lucy, Desi and Ricky Ricardo, which is the chorus. And my, and my mom is like, you know, she's like a TV widow. You know, we have golf widows today, right? So she, she's she's right. like a TV. She's like, well, we actually have, of course, we have you know internet, and and, and what right. all the devices. screen time
1: widows. But but it, before it, we play the song, we're going to insert it, and then we'll talk about it coming back. It's a saxophone right. that I'm hearing. It's in my head. Yeah, you wrote the lyrics, and it's a lot deeper than I realized. Anything right. else people should know? What what well, is Dave, Dave doing Dave, on this song? Anything?
4: Well, this is this is an interesting one because Dave plays bass on this song and he played bass maybe a third of the time. I played it two thirds. We had kind of like a Lennon McCartney thing where You know, we couldn't afford a bass player, so one of us had to play it. So I I deferred and decided I would, which has been a fabulous resource all these years later when I'm writing and adding bass to even acoustic guitar. And so so Dave sings the song because Dave and I, we were very like, you know what? Whoever can sing the song, the other person, you you know, whoever can sing the song best sings it. And I could sing the high harmonies above him.
1: So he so sang. That's our troubadour singing about Amos and Andy. Looking right. back, wow, the connotations of Amos
4: and Andy. Have you thought about that? Oh sure, sure. Of and- course. All all of those, all of those were, you know, you know, they were just People that, you know, move, uh, shows that we grew up watching, you know what I mean? They'd be there on silent right. mode, right? But, and, and, but now I know the
1: backstory. This is about your dad who you beautifully described. Let's let everybody listen to Color Next TV day. by <laughs> right. the Scotter Brains. We're back with T Five uh, Valladares. You put that uh-huh. Spanish uh, very nice twist on it. Did you like that troubadour? You need to work
5: on the R. Did Greg. you
1: know all this stuff about the famous Valladares family that goes back to the 11th century? They came over to this kind of
5: world way before Columbus. Well, I learned something about T and his, and his uncles. That, that's interesting, T.
1: Yeah. And then you guys were kind of involved in the Inquisition, or were you already in Central America?
4: No, I, no, I, I think we were in the Inquisition. We were still over in Spain. I don't think well, we came. Do over. You want to
1: apologize to your troubadour and me for that little thing? Oh, abs-
4: absolutely! Are you kidding?
1: Apology <laughs>
4: accepted. Yeah,
1: I would. I would been. I would been Went one, on with uh, Jesus. David and I were somewhere else that night. We had nothing to do with anything. Okay.
4: <laughs> of course, of course, we know that. I, I know that, and you know, um, uh, that's that's another story. Dave can tell you about my uh, <laughs> my religious inclinations.
1: <laughs> well, we we don't have to go there. <laughs> right. Uh, right. At the Olympics. They're playing John Lennon. Imagine yeah. once again. Imagine no religion. But let's talk about music. Let's talk about an undiscovered genius in my view. He's in my presence right now in my home studio, my friend, my neighbor, and to me, a world-class composer of beautiful music. Do you agree that the troubadour is gifted in that regard?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Dave, Dave has always written beautiful songs about whatever he decides to write about. I mean, I tease him about some of the songs that I actually love. He wrote one song about his, a dog he had when he was a teenager. And I still, when I see him, I'm like, ginger, running through the field so free. <laughs> and, those you know, are, those are my to...
5: formative years, T, but thank you and thanks, Craig. I think it was perhaps a little overstated, but I appreciate it. This is why I'm here with you guys, right?
4: Right, right, to keep us, to keep us honest. But no, not to be had... honest,
5: to revel in all these compliments.
4: Oh, good, Dave. Well, well you also had incredible, like afternoon rainfall. What a what a gem! Beautiful songs all through the years. You I've know? never and-
1: even heard these. I've never heard about Ginger. I've never heard afternoon rainfall. Are these recorded anywhere?
4: I'm sure Dave has recordings somewhere. I mean, no, he, might he, have- he's, he
1: loses things. He's at an age yeah. where he starts to lose things, and I think he's been at that age for about three decades now.
4: Right. Well, we both lost our minds long ago, and I think that's why we're able to just, you know, sing from the heart, write from the heart, and well, what's this not-
1: afternoon song? It might be the best you ever re- wrote. Where is it? What's it called again?
5: Actually, that afternoon was after rainfall, rainfall. It was written for my older sister. Remember, T for Su- for Susan.
4: Susan. Yep, yep, yep,
5: yep. It was um, it was a song just uh, a love, you know, kind of uh, describing the love I had for my sister.
1: And and can we find the lyrics or do you want to sing
5: it now? Because uh, I think history should record this. I think we'll let's give history a chance in the future here.
1: <laughs> Have you ever noticed, T5, that uh, Dave Gunders is prescient about the future and he wrote a lot of songs that apply, say, to COVID 19? And I'm thinking about a hit from the Scotter Brains called
4: Isolation. Isolation. Yeah, we wrote Isolation. We had a. Uh the keyboard player was living in, you know, in my house that I had rented. He was, he was a housemate and he was playing in like, you know, like jazzy type bands with like Al Green singers and things like that. And he just saw how, how, you know, people took to the brains and he, he, you know, he couldn't believe, you know, all the hoopla that was happening over this band that was playing these relatively simple songs, but you know packing every place we played so he joined the band and he was wonderful because he was like adding uh he, he rounded everything out and added color and he was really good with his oberheim synthesizer well he came down one day and he goes you know guys i have this i have this little groove here and and I'll, i do, do you want to do something with it and so right away dave and i we just started writing lyrics right there both of us and together and we came up with this incredible song, "Isolation." And, and, you know, it's like, it's so much both of us that it's, it's hard to even tell you who wrote what lines and what parts, but, but we, uh, you know, again, it was one of those ones where, you know, I sang the high part, you know what I mean? And, and it came out, it came out beautiful, a beautiful song. And, um, what were you guys thinking about? How do you write a song together? Well, you come up with a theme. And then one of, one of you starts, it's just like Lennon-McCartney or any songwriting duo. You, know, you come up with a theme and someone says, you know, isolation, is it the modern way? And someone else says, oh, silent negation, we live it with a day-to-day. Indecision, you know, where am I supposed to go? Double vision, dividing the things we know. Sitting here in my room, someone else is staring at the full moon. Voices inside of me keep on saying, breakout, breakout, got to break away from my isolation. See what I mean? And so, so it's, if you are lucky, you will meet someone in your lifetime that has that kind of, you know, um, synergy with you. But how does it work? Who has final authority on the lyrics? Oh, both of us, both of us. We, we were both, we were both just so accepting and trusting and see that that's the whole deal with songwriting for me to this day. You know, when I write a song, I'm like a painter. I'm throwing all the shit on the canvas, you know, and I want to see what sticks. And then I take it and I massage it. I rearrange it. Whereas I think a lot of people they throw stuff down and they keep erasing it and throwing it away, you know, a writer's block or whatever. And, and they don't allow themselves to get past what, what my wife is an artist, you know, an incredible uh, magical realism painter. And she says, everything has to go past the ugly stage. And most people will not go past that ugly stage. So Dave and I, we were just so close. I mean, we were like of the same blood, you know, that that's how close we were. We lived and slept together. And you know what I mean? Uh, for, for, so, for all those years. Hey, wait and, a minute.
5: I want to interject. This, yes, this, please this, do. Just, just in case there's
4: misinterpretation there. Sometimes, sometimes they would give us some rat hole to sleep in with one bed and we'd have to either sleep in the van or, you know, share, sleep on the same bed all or right, whatever. That explains
1: but, the cover art on your greatest hits of the scatterbrains.
4: Exactly. A drink out of the same cup, whatever. It didn't matter to us. And we were just of one, you know, of one mind, one heart with our songwriting. And we just really trusted each other. And and your wife was in the band too, a lot of times, right? No, my wife is in our present band. Oh, in your present band.
1: Okay. That's it. We'll get to that. That's Mighty Trusters or something like that. But before we leave this, Scott Brains, Troubadour, what about Isolation? Do you remember it the same way? And what were you guys... Thinking about because now with COVID everybody's dealt with isolation, but back then, what what was the thought that came into your mind and why?
5: Well, you know, no, what T what T described I think is is accurate. Brian, I remember Brian uh, playing the part and he and he would sing. He was not a lyricist, but he he sang. Bad-a-do-a-dee. And we came up with isolation. So I mean, sometimes you work with a, a melody. That's exactly how it happened. And T, T and I, I wrote it. But um, you know, it's it's um, you know, it's it's like T says. You you have you have you 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 know you, you care about each other as friends. You you know you want the best for each other. And uh, and the songs can reflect that. What a beautiful process. Let's get
1: let's give an opportunity to everybody to listen to Isolation by the Scotter Brains featuring Dave Gunders and T5 by Adaris. Isolation, isolation, isolation.
5: isolation. Oh
1: Now we're back. Let's give the full name of that keyboard guy who's responsible for this song
4: too. Yeah, that 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 is Brian Martin, who lives in LA. Actually, Brian lives in Long Beach, California. Hey, T, give a
5: shout out to all the other to our original members of the band, and then also the the kind of the second the other guys who came in.
4: Right. Well, that that sensational sax player is Pat Tugman. We called him the Tugfish, and um, then we had Lee Bernard who was on drums. He was from Boulder. And then when we moved to Boston, we, uh, we got another drummer, um, uh, Seth and, um,
5: Seth Burkhart, and, um, Seth, Bur- Seth yeah.
4: Burkhart, who, who later became like a, 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 you know, a great jazz drummer. And, uh, let's see, then we had, uh, in, in Boulder, we had Mitch Weiner on drums also. And uh, Steve Sorotkin who has a, a recording studio up in the mountains outside of Boulder.
1: Which musicians along the way really made it big? Somebody in your band or on the stage with you? Tell us uh, people who we might recognize.
4: You know what? We're one of those bands of undiscovered talent, I would say. That's that's
1: something, because when you play festivals and stuff, say, oh, wow. Because as you mentioned, you played a lot of the venues where you know the eagles and others trod and you guys still are doing it i'm just wondering who do you think is the best undiscovered musician is it a guy like this keyboard man
4: well of course of course uh, i would say undiscovered undiscovered well of course dave and myself that's it you know? and 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 <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd have to say that from those bands, but the earlier bands, they had their modicum of success. Chuck Hughes from that was in Traveling Shoes. You know, he's had he's you know he tours all over you know the world in a in a in a rockabilly band. And Rob Rio, he gets flown to Europe to play boogie woogie festivals. You know, in Germany and you know places like that. And, and, and so so those guys have had their, their measure of success.
1: Now you're talking. Now let's talk about the best venue that you would consider. And let me start with the troubadour, because he's strangely silent, and I can tell T5 is not shy. I'm going to hit you with a lightning docket, okay? All right. If you had one place to play,
5: where would it be? Are you talking realistically? Everybody wants to play Red Rocks. Red Rocks is the best place to play. T?
4: Well, not having played Red Rocks, for me, probably the best place we ever played was the Blue Note in Boulder.
1: That's what I'm talking about, where you guys played, where you could go right. back in time. You know what? Let's not uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves because the Scotter Brains couldn't last forever. And uh, let's talk about the subsequent bands that you formed and got gigs with.
4: Right. Well, after the Scotter Brains, I... Um, uh, basically, Dave went, to, you know, went and got his MBA, and I went and got my teaching certificate. He started his own uh, um, business, and I became a school teacher in Boulder. And so I would always um, play music with the kids, and I would hook up with the, you know, with the music teacher and say, you know what, I'm a rock and roll musician, and if you want to use me, please do. And so I ended up with, a, fortunately, with a couple of music teachers that maybe like about eight or nine times we put on music productions. And so I formed a, I formed a bands to back up the kids. So 85 kids would be dressed up from Elvis Beatles through disco and singing and dancing. And I would put together the band. And so Dave was always part of the bands. And so the first band was, it was kind of a surf musical. And so we called the band hang T and, and, and the surf dogs, and so we became Hang T and the Surf Dogs in the schools. But then eventually, people started hiring us for parties. So then we, then we when we kept going and, and and we started playing parties and bar mitzvahs and boss mitzvahs and, and weddings and things like that, we changed our names to—I changed the name of the band to the Mighty Twisters. And that's who we are at present. We've been the Mighty Twisters now for, jeez, I don't know, 20 years, Dave? That sounds about right. Do you get to do all the naming of the bands, T? Well— by default, That's, I'm just going to leave it at that. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Dave plays in a couple of other bands. Everyone in the band plays in other bands. I play as a single. I play as a duo with my wife. So so this is basically considered my band. I have to do all the work for it. The other guys kind of show up. You know, they, they Dave brings the PA. He does a lot of the, you know, heavy lifting. And But everyone, everyone you know, does their role in the band. Uh, everyone in our band. I can stands.
1: see your role now. You're a take right. charge guy, and that's cool. Well, and people can check out social media. The scatterbrains with the K in it, and then uh, mighty twisters. What other groups could they look up and find you guys in?
4: Well, they might look up traveling shoes. Um, it, someone may have put something on there from way back when. Um, of course, they can look up you know Dave Gunders if they want to look at all his CDs. Mine T Five Valideris. I have 11 CDs, solo CDs. You know, I don't do the whole band thing. I'd say I'm a little ADHD and I just want to get it over with and move on to the next album. And so um, but but the band plays quite a few of both of our songs. You know, we're always bringing in a couple of songs, almost every gig that we play between the two of us. So it keeps it fresh, exciting. It keeps everyone on their toes. And you never know what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Or right. Often, Just like color ra-
1: TV catches fire in South America, the World Wide Web—it's amazing, isn't it? Especially for music.
4: One person, um, there's a there's a site called Ská alrededor del mundo. It means like Ská around the world, right? Or Ská across the world. And and someone on that site, he he. He uh, messengered me the other day and he said, you know, I've been listening. I've been listening to the Scotter Brains for quite a few years. And I'm the one that, you know, um, posted that video on there. He posted that video and it had like 230 views or 300 views. It's now it's now, you know, knocking on forty five thousand in like eight or nine days. So, you know, for us, you know, that's not, you know, millions viral, but but it's it's what we call it a mini viral. And it's very exciting to just have some re- someone recognize you. You know what I mean? And I, we've got like, you know, a thousand shares and four thousand likes and hearts and all that. And, and you take and it's
1: just- pleasure in the fact that I still got do 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 still going <laughs> through my head.
4: Yeah, wonderful. That's that's the whole point. That's the whole point of a hook, right? Is the hook has to. I feel to like
1: get- getting up and dancing. Okay, now you're good at answering the questions, unlike the troubadours, So I'm going to let you go first. Who's the best dancer between you and him?
4: Oh boy, that's that's a tough. You know what? I'll let the audience decide that. They can they can they can check out color TV on YouTube or I'm so shy or sometimes you hurt me or any of the songs we have on there, and uh, they can decide for themselves. We both are crazy dancers, we love it. People tell me I have a little Latino thing, which is natural, it's in my blood. And um, we both like to go wild and have fun and sweat and just, you know, be part of part of.
1: I think the David has some of that Jewish Kazatsky from, you know, the old <laughs> country in him, right? Where he starts kicking out his legs. Crazy oh, yeah. moves. I, it's like MMA before it's time. Has he ever hit you with his feet? Uh,
4: Not with his feet, with his uh, with his uh, with his uh, racket, racket playing. pinball.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. he's it's not he's that a, coordinated. Anyway. Cause,
4: he, cause, Cause he's a lefty, but, but, but we have a, I have a story for you. If we have time, sure. uh, the Scotter brains were playing in situate Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. And we were doing a version of, um, we, we came back from break and Dave was lost. He wasn't there. And, um, and we were playing our version of 96 tears was, which was a very interesting, punky but not fast punky it was it was like a reggae punky you can version find of, that
1: on facebook or
4: youtube
1: i, I watched it uh,
4: yes you can right well okay we were playing that our version of 96 tears and dave wasn't around and the band was right into the groove solidly into the groove going he's going to show up at any minute well he comes grabs the mic and climbs up in the rafters of the place and goes goes across the rafters singing the song and the crowd went nuts
1: Right, because the song is about somebody dripping tears on top of another person, and that guy's down, but he's going to get on top of her, and she's going to be crying or something like that. Do I have it right? Keep it clean. <laughs>
5: Keep it clean, Craig.
1: Right. It's right. 96 tears. It's God, you've got a dirty mind. But it, that's not an original song. Somebody else no, wrote
5: it. No, no. Question Mark no, and not. the Mysterians.
1: Can I just yeah. say, T, I think there's a good time deep into the interview that last week I made a mistake and I said that Bruce Springsteen had covered a Neville Brothers song and he really hadn't. It was Ico and uh, uh, Brother right. John is gone. And this is my first correction in two years of doing the podcast. But I wanted to apologize with my troubadour right here. who He loves Got Bruce it. Springsteen. That's another musical influence on the troubadour. Would you agree?
4: oh to on, on both of us and Bruce is Bruce is incredible and you know he speaks yeah it's funny because i got into a discussion slash argument with someone at my coffee shop yesterday about Bruce you know and he was you know some someone was listening to us we always talk music right and and so this person was saying, this person that was sitting there turned around and she said well do you think that someone could really make that much money and still be truly a blue-collar mentality. We were talking about Bruce Springsteen, you know, who has oodles of money. And, and, and um, the other person said, no, you know, they fall to fame and blah, 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 and this and that. And I, I said, I, I'm sorry, I beg to differ with you. I said, I, said, I believe that Bruce, in his heart— you know, is still blue collar. He reaches back to his roots. He reaches back to, you know, the hard times that he had personally and his his father had. If you've ever seen his shows, you know, he's very genuine, you know, and, and, and he is what he is. And just I said I said, you know, you need to be a songwriter or a writer. You don't have to be, but but it helps to be to be able to reach in and feel those feelings and those experiences. And they're still as real today as they were back then. You know, I mean, Bruce isn't sitting here writing about, you know, going with Jeff Bezos up to up to Mars or wherever he's going. You know what I'm saying? He's still talking to the to the blue collar worker, you know, and and, I um,
1: and I'll put except, your love of the boss right up there with uh, our troubadour. But yes, I respect, did apologize. Respect. But I want to say that song, Brother John, I've been thinking about it, another song that's been in my head because I made my singing debut. Not uh-huh. realizing that there were thousands of songs of the Troubadour on Amazon and Apple through the Scotterbrains, the Mighty Twisters, all those things. Anyway, I had to sing, and he does the entree to the song. Do it again, will you, Troubadour?
5: Giacomo Finandé.
1: Okay, what does that mean?
5: Giacomo, Giacomo Finan what, what <laughs> I,
1: I was thinking, is that gibberish? Is that like he making up words but i think i figured it out
5: go ahead craig well you, you i think guys, it, i think it's like get out of my way get out of my way no
1: giacomo what? is jack right which is another name for john and fiend is the end right and i think it's something about brother john is is gone in another language am i right t
4: uh, you're probably right. You know they're the wild chapachulas, right? And those, those they they have their, yes, they covered their, it their Indian and and their uh, their their Cajun roots down there, and they have their own. They have their own patois,
1: right. So, but while we're on the subject of Brother John, is there another song that predates that that we all know singing about Brother John? Not there in Neville or Cyril Neville's song, the Neville Brother song. Wow, Where is Jacques. Frere oh oh yeah.
4: there is Jacques that's Brother
1: John.
5: That's right. That's
1: right. And then when you sing Giacomo Pin on Day. Anyway, that's my musical contribution. Back to you guys. All right. That's- let's talk about touring. Tell us about being a musical tour. That sounds like such a great life. What was the most memorable tour of your band career so
5: far?
4: Well, the Scotter Brains. You know, the the, the, uh, the traveling shoes, would go up and play Breckenridge and we'd get this, you know, they'd give us this really falling apart house to live in. But we were able to ski every day and play music at night. And that was that was wonderful.
1: Who's the better great, skier?
4: Oh, Dave, by far. Dave, Dave has ta- Dave taught me how to ski pretty much. And and but um, but the greatest was the Scotter Brains. We spent one summer in the Boston area and. One week we were on Nantucket Island. The next week we were in Martha's Vineyard, and the next week we were in um, Newport, Rhode Island and we got in with the businessmen we are We got in with the local windsurfing um, companies there stores and we said, "You know hey, you know we we'll, we'll uh, if you give us a discount we'll we'll put up one of your sales on our, as our backdrop." Well, the guy came and saw us and loved us, and he said, "I have a store here, and I have a store at Newport in in newport and you can have free windsurfing all summer so so we were
5: gosh what a summer what i appreciated was t t was a tough negotiator with the bar managers and uh (laughs) so 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 t had him right into the contract that we could have lobster or anything we wanted at night so we were eating we were eating just the best fresh seafood yeah
4: are you a good negotiator t Oh yeah, oh it's the Guatemalan in me. I've been mean, that my parents sent me to live with my grandparents for six months when I was five years old by myself. And they didn't speak a word of English. It was the best thing they ever did for me in my life, by far. I came back bilingual, but but it was also like my grand my grandmother. She would say to me, "Oh, mijito, you know, my little child." She goes, "She goes here. Here's a nickel. Here's cinco centavos. Run down to Don Martín's. You know, half a block away. It was like a little bakery because because see how many espumias you can get for for a nickel." And I would come. I would come back with a bag full of them. and espumillas are are they're meringues. You know what? Have you ever had those?
1: How did you work it at the store? What was your pitch, or did you? Uh,
4: i was just cute big brown eyes and and, and i would like point and and he'd, he'd put a couple in the bag and i'd say put up three fingers or something whatever you know what you know hook or crook whatever and it was the same thing with the club owners that dave and i you know you just have to they're tough they're tough because you know they have their bottom line and you know so so you have to like you know really crowbar things out of them and and, um, <laughs> I don't speak
1: any Spanish, but was the end of your negotiation, uno mas?
4: Yeah, right. Uno mas. Otra, otra. You know, or una mas. Right. And so I'd come back and and so that, that that's that's a fond memory I have. And so and then I lived in um, um, Madrid, Spain for two and a half years. It was the same thing. Nobody pays, you know, full price. You go to Mexico and someone's trying to sell you, you know, whatever, a setup or whatever, or, or, you know, you know, and they say, you know, Hundred hundred dollars. It's like yeah, yeah, let's try twenty dollars. He goes, no, 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 seventy-five. It's like you know, I really, I'm not willing to spend more than twenty. Okay, fifty. Now you now you got some. You now know. I
1: want to go to Madrid. You know what Madrid and Denver have in common? What's that? Exact same latitude. I knew that. Oh. Yeah. Well, why don't that you pipe th- in? You're you're sitting there like a pot of plant. Do you want to ask T some questions? <laughs>
5: Um, I think I know, I think <laughs> nothing comes to mind right now. All right, He's I'm my buddy ask, for 40 years. Okay, I'm
1: going to ask you a question and then T will fifty years contradict you, okay? Your favorite ever live performance with T5 by diary.
5: Well, the probably, I mean, what T says, some of our Blue Note performances were, were just so much fun because we were with our people and everything. Although the probably the most, uh, T, I would say the, the uh, the the one that that I like to tell people about is because we were rubbing up against fame is when we opened up for you too. Well, Absolutely. that's what
1: I'm talking about. Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. Where were that, you with you two? We were we were in the Lincoln Center in Fort Collins. It was their first tour. So they were just kids. They were 19. Right, right. It was their that first? Was...
1: Is Blue Note the right answer? T
4: uh well blue note for live we said that before for for all over clubs but i agree with dave the greatest experience was you know opening for you too and having their crowd there cheering us on they loved us and it was great because i i i was at uh the clash concert Dave and I were at the clash concert and we wanted to open for the clash at red rocks but but at the time the denver promoters would not look at the boulder bands at least not for these gigs and so they picked they picked the like a rockabilly band but the rockabilly band the crowd thought they were posers. You know, they didn't. They didn't think they were genuine, and they pelted them off the stage right. within like two songs. And Dave and I looked at each other. And said, Maybe we don't want to be on that stage right now. But but we would have we would have killed there because 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 the English beat and the specials, the two you know biggest uh, ska bands in England, along with Madness, they opened regularly for the Clash, did and that's you, why. We-
1: did you ever encounter a hostile crowd? What was the worst crowd you ever had?
4: Well, we had we had a neo-Nazi in one of one of the bars and he came up and started, uh, you know, insulting Dave. Was this on the
1: East Coast tour? I've heard this story.
4: It was. It was was when we were living there. It was actually in the town we lived in, in Situate. And so and so um, what happened was, you know, Dave said, are you talking to me? And the guy goes, blah, 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 blah. And Dave threw off his guitar and leaped on the guy. And there was an instant riot. And we were all out there, including Dave's first wife you know what I mean and everyone no was fighting and 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 so and so and so the club manager at the end he was like uh, he was like you guys are never playing here again I said oh yeah I'm calling the police right now and filing charges and he goes no you can't do that my license is you know well, is, is close to suspension so he, he, he goes he goes well, what can I do I said, I said you can bring us back here for a couple more gigs is what you can do and so he did and um, but it was but it was that was the worst usually people were really kind to us. When we had our our biker our bike our, our biker band, those bikers would, would protect us. What was your biker band? That was the traveling
1: shoes. And oh, it I- It's a biker
4: band. Well well I, I call it a biker band because the bikers really love Leonard Skinner and Grateful Dead and right. Allman Brothers and all of that. And, and and that's what, you know, we had blues, they loved the blues and, and so we just we just had that kind of uh, uh, music and you know a lot of other crowds loved us. Like we like another thing would happen is we would play the pioneer up in Netherland And, you know, that was a lot of blue collar construction worker types that would come in. And, and there was almost never a night that we played there, that there wasn't a fight at the end of the night that would break into like a brawl. But, but luckily, I mean, I got hit once by a beer bottle that they were throwing at somebody else. But for the most part, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't have much. We weren't involved of the trade.
1: I mean, it, now right. how how many times would you say you've taken the stage with our troubadour?
4: Wow! Oh my gosh! Well, that, that's hard to say. I mean, we would play. You know, we would play. You know, anywhere between two and six nights a week. We did that for how many years, Dave?
5: Bl- many years, many years. All right. I was, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. And you hundreds, had, hundreds of times. You same. had to develop
1: a shtick, right? Somebody's got to oh. be the first person to talk. And I bet you had some uh, patter between the two of you that you used over and over. Can we hear it now? <laughs> hey, Bro T,
5: you want to start this song or should I?
4: No, man, I will start at this one. You can start the next one.
5: All right, man. Make sure this this time, make sure you don't play it too fast. <laughs> yeah i hope you have your roller skates on bro
1: (laughs) and off you would go i knew it and a new audience (laughs) every time but i bet you had your fans who would follow you around and oh
4: we definitely who, definitely who,
1: who is your most dedicated group of fans
4: uh, the fans in Boulder were the most dedicated and, and even some of them even would come to Boston to listen to us there. So, you know, it was it was one one person came because his job transferred him there and he would come to a lot of our gigs there. And then, uh, you know, we have another friend, Deb, Deb King, who who went to b- most of our gigs and there was a whole contingent of you know, women friends that, that would always be dancing on the sides. And, you know, we just had that band, the Scatterbrains. They had very, very loyal, you know, f- uh, following. They, they just loved us and didn't want to miss a show. It was, it was really fantastic. I'm glad that occasionally you say
1: Scatterbrain, so I don't have to say Scatterbrain every time. But <laughs> I love it. And I like that you're putting out your own albums. I like that you put out the Fire album. I oh, really like you. the song Vibration City. I think that, that's beautiful. But I like your album cover because, one, I know Dave Gunders well, and I'm getting to know you pretty darn well. Yeah. And I can see we have some similar sensibilities. And let's get into T5, the person, the teacher. You put on that album cover uh, that you wanted to do something. that The fires you were trying to put out was... Hate, partisan politics, as you put it, uh-huh. fear, oppression, greed, and discrimination. Correct. I bet and you that, gave that some thought.
4: Well, I did. And, you know, that's basically the tip of the iceberg. I just want people to get back to being kind. Kind is not a, you know, why, is, why does kind or love have to be become four-letter words? You know what I mean? And and we're just so... We're so bent on hatred and destruction, you know, our society and and indifference. That's the other thing is indifference and apathy, right? right. You brought are, up
1: the <laughs> last four years and people say, well, he's not the cause. He's the symptom. I'm not so sure. I've never seen anybody so deliberately divisive, but you guys have been fighting the man for a long time. You're quite a bit older than I am, which I admire yeah. about you guys, but, uh, did you ever see America in extremists like it is right now?
4: Well, not not from internal implosion. You know, of course, we lived through through Vietnam, and we were out there demonstrating that war. So that was that. Of course, that was you know that was hell. You know that right. to go through. My dad was a military man. I was a war demonstrator, so you can imagine what I had to live through 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 that. You know what I mean? And. Sure. And and um, but but this thing that's that, you know, this this, you know, as soon as the all the all the countries started um, turning inward. Right. And, and it became isolation. There's that song isolation. It keeps popping up. You know, well, we don't want any outsiders. We don't want these people. It's like, you know what? What were you at one time? You know, you were an outsider coming in. You know, and you were welcome. Lady Liberty welcomed you with open arms. And now you're just, you know, crapping on Lady Liberty and, you know, and, and saying, forget that. It's all about me and and my success and my materialism. And, you know, it's just, it's just wrong. And and I, I know that I've read about you and, and it, we're strongly in the same camp when it comes to that. And, you know, I, I just try to say that through my music. And if you go to my T5 Valideris Facebook page, you know, my strongest songs don't make it on my albums because my strongest songs, I don't mean strong, you know, my strongest, my most political songs don't make it because they're temporal. I'm pissed off today about Trump said this, or now this is going on. And, right. you know, so, so my, 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 my albums, I put a few on there, like put out the fire, you know what I mean? But the put out the fire for me is more soft core than, than I really get. If you listen to some of my other stuff, you know, and, um, I just want people to get along. I mean, come on, you know, life is short or long. And, you know, why can't it be long and beautiful? We live on a beautiful planet. We're the ones that are making it ugly, you know.
1: That's beautifully said. Troubadour, I can see why you get along with this guy. He's got a good <laughs> heart, fast brain, and he cares. Talk, wrap it up for us. Tell us right. about this experience for you. Have you learned a little something or you knew everything about this guy?
5: No, I'm always learning something from T. I just want to say thanks for all the great years. T, here's to the next 50 or 60 years playing together.
2: T and I, cherish, I, yeah, T and I, I, I have cherish.
5: such joy being together. We've we have um we've you know built our musical lives together, and we've just experienced so many. Like T says, trans, transcendent. I'm sure other musicians know exactly what he means. But to be on on stage playing music with friends and having people respond in the audience, I mean, there's nothing better. And so, thanks for all for all of that, T.
4: Thanks for the memories.
1: You are showing your age. It wasn't just your dad watching those old shows, Bob Hope. I really enjoyed it, T, and your personality really (laughs) shone through, and it's a beautiful thing. Thank you for uh, being out there, and I hope I get to meet you in person before long.
5: Whoever's yeah, out well, there, you, the Twisters are playing a week from Saturday. What day is that? Yeah, uh, up in the uh, the you know, the um, the basement of the Boulderado Hotel. It's called the License One. A week from this Saturday. What's that right, day? That's, no,
1: that's July, July the 30th. Okay. No, July 31st. July 31st. 31st uh, is
5: the
4: License One from nine to twelve. Come on out, bring your friends, and don't. That's in Boulder, and don't forget to bring your dancing shoes. Right, we're going to turn up the energy dance. for
5: this one you can i'll tell we you
4: will, we will be doing craig we will be doing color tv we worked it up and who's playing the clarinet i'm playing i'm playing the saxophone on my lead oh, guitar i mean the
1: saxophone right <laughs> there is now you did it again do 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 do, do 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 do, do. T, what a pleasure i hope okay. i'm i'd like to see you in boulder okay
4: Wonderful. And and Craig, you keep doing what you're doing. I really admire when I read your little, when I read your oh, uh, biography you. thing. And uh, I really admire you. We need people like you that are willing to say what they believe and to say what's going wrong, what's going right. You know what I mean? And not just just you know be become whitewashed like every like so many people and just accept
1: i think you know? we need more guys like the troubadour who are oblivious to the news and write songs about the moon the stars a river a tree a There's concept called so- love i think yep. he benefits from being oblivious have you noticed that about him through the years <laughs> Well,
4: he, he he wears a good mask. Let, let's put it that way. But no, dude, he's he's Dave is very deep when you get to, when you get under that. So, you know, um, he's just he's just a, he's a great person is what it is. I know. You know? We're lucky to have him in our lives. Thank, thank you, brother. Thank you. Bye.
1: llc.com
0: Now back to the Fred
1: Silverman Show. And while what a show. Thanks for joining me. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to my guest, Dylan Roberts. Good luck in your run for State Senate Carol, Malaysia. While we had experiences together and we just had another one on my podcast. Thanks to my troubadour. And I understand about T now. That guy's got a gift for music and for gab i hope you enjoyed this show i did till next time bye bye
0: thank you for listening tune in live every saturday morning nine to noon mountain time visit the for the podcast blog and more be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available this has been the craig silverman show